Nicole Whitney News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. You're now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. Yay, we are live April 11, 2017. It is uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 11 Mountain Time, I do believe, and that's the time we had pegged away for a very special hour on News for the Soul, especially in times that we are in right now. We've talked to him many times over the years, and this I believe is going to be one of the most important chats because of what's going on in our world today. Greg Braden, New York Times best-selling author, internationally known as a pioneer in bridging science and spirits, which is one of the favorite places we like to hang out. Following a successful career as a computer geologist in the 1970s, he worked as a senior liaison with the U.S. Air Force Base Command during the Cold War years in the 80s. In the 90s, he became, um, started, I think that's when he started exploring the spirituality side as well, and the two come together in a very most interesting way for high mountain villages, remote monasteries, and forgotten texts, and started connecting the dots, and that's where it gets really exciting. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book as well, Resilience of the Heart. I understand it's the revised edition of The Turning Point, so we're going to find out all about that, and find out what well, I'm most excited about checking in and tuning in with the uh, Greg's exciting perspective, conscious perspective on what the heck is going on in our world of extremes right now. Greg Braden, welcome back to News for the Soul. Hey, Nicole, it's so good to hear your voice. I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you today and thrilled to be with our audience. Uh, thank you for inviting me back. <laughs> we have, we've done this a number of times, and I, when I saw the, the list came uh, into my office of my media interviews that I was going to have this week, I saw your name. A big smile on my face because we always have a really great program, and I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Oh, right back at you. We are very much appreciating uh, the piece that you bring to the big picture, and holy moly, I don't even know where to start today. I can't. I, it's you, been a few years since we've uh, talked, but you know, can I can world. I start? Can I can I get us started yeah. today? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to just share with our listeners. I had a really interesting interview <clears throat> recently, another another uh, radio station. And the first thing the interviewer said to me, he didn't say, "Welcome to the show. How are you?" Anything like that. He said, "Greg, why can't you stick with one topic like everybody else?" <laughs> he said, "You are all over the map." He said, "Are you talking about science, spirituality, about DNA, about ancient history, about Earth magnetics, about climate change?" He goes, "What are you talking about?" And I said, you know, every one of those things that you've just mentioned is a facet of the human experience. And in a very real sense, I said, I am talking about one, one thing, one topic. It just happens to be a really big topic, uh, and it's about us and our relationship yeah. to ourselves and to the world and to the past and one another and to the future. And then he said, well, let's take a station break. <laughs> and then we came back and, and did the rest of the interview. So my work, it does touch on many facets of our experience because we don't live in a vacuum. That's the world that we live in. And that's one of the reasons I love working with you, Nicole, because you are doing such a, a beautiful job of taking uh, a message that for some people is, is a new way and a very different way of thinking and sharing this in a responsible way across the airwaves. And I appreciate that. I uh, just appreciate it tremendously. Well, I, we, you know, like I said, we really value your work and your piece, and I'm extremely interested to get your overall perspective. That's where I'd like to start is, you well, know, if the world's very different than we 
it was when we last talked. We were kind of on this exciting ascension of connection, and, you know, you were showing videos of tumors disappearing in 60 seconds. We're all very happy and excited, and woo, and we thought we'd be in a different place by now. Uh, it's mm. got this overall view of things kind of going off the rails in the mainstream, and I thought we were further ahead, evolved consciously, and, you know, perspective on where we are in the world with in the spirit and consciousness connections. How would you sum it sure. up in, in that view? Yeah, you know, it's. <clears throat> I was just reading um, uh, a history summary of the, the last 200 years of, uh, of our experience. And what many historians now uh, are suggesting, they embrace that the 20th century, <clears throat> they're saying, was a century of what they're, they're calling a century of discovery. Okay, so, you know, the big discoveries of physics, uh, classical physics, quantum physics, uh, subatomic particles, DNA, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Nag Hammadi Library, the oldest records of the New Testament, the Nag Hammadi, and, and uh, you know, space exploration. It was a century of exploration, and it revealed many things to us. And the 21st century, they say, where we are right now, is we are on a very steep learning curve of discovering what, where those discoveries fit in our lives. How do we apply what we now know to be true in our everyday lives? And I think the world is reflecting that. Uh, right now, Nicole, I, I, I trust, personally, I trust in the process. Uh, the world is a different place than I expected that we would be in, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the indigenous people that I've talked to and worked with, uh, many of the ancient texts, they say within the first 25 years of, of this new century, they said we won't even recognize our, our lives and our world anymore. And I, I think, you know, we're seeing that happen. So we're, we're learning about ourselves and our relationship to the world based upon new discoveries. And this is what I'm writing about. The, the new book, <clears throat> well, the newest book, that is on the market right now that, that you have access to is called Resilience from the Heart. There's actually another book that will be released October of this year called, uh, the title is Human by Design. And both of these books are based upon peer-reviewed science. So it's rock-solid science, uh, not necessarily my opinion or my perspective or my hypotheses or my theories, but this is the new science, Nicole, that is changing the way we think about ourselves and our relationship to the world. On the one hand, and on the other hand, there is, I'm just going to say there is not only a reluctance, but there is a resistance to sharing a lot of this new information in the mainstream because it, it overturns 150 years of scientific thinking and the, the story that we tell ourselves. We are steeped in this scientific story that's based upon separation, uh, scarcity, competition, and conflict. And the new discoveries are telling us that we live in a, in a world of cooperation. Nature is based upon cooperation, not competition, and that we are deeply connected to ourselves and one another. And the science is showing us just how deep these connections go. So that is the, the theme for both of the new books, and the one that you just mentioned, Resilience from the Heart, uh, is just that. It is about the new discoveries uh, of specialized cells in the human heart that allow us a direct access to our bodies in ways that we've never thought possible in the past. We thought only mystics and yogis uh, and special adepts could do something like this, and now it's becoming available to everyday people. So that's a long answer to a short question. I trust in the process in the world, uh, and what I think we're seeing is an unfolding of 
understandings of what is sustainable or what's not, what works, what doesn't. And what we're finding is a lot of the way we've been taught to think is no longer sustainable. And so we're the generation that's bridging these new discoveries and learning to apply them in our world. And I can't think of a more exciting time to be alive. I'm sure many of your other speakers are probably saying something very similar. So, uh, so again, that's a long answer to a short question, and I'll follow your lead, and we can go anywhere we want to go from there. It is a very exciting time for sure. And I think you nailed it right in the first half of your first sentence in response was that, you know, um, before we were learning about these things, now it's, it's essentially, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but it basically we have to start doing what we've learned. Yeah. Start yeah. being it. Well, you know, that's the thing. You, what's happening is in the mid-1800s, you know, when I began talking about the discoveries of Charles Darwin and, uh, you know, many of the, the physicists that were making discoveries in, in the late 1800s, people say to me, Greg, we're in the 21st century. What difference could those things possibly make? And it's a really good question, and the answer surprises a lot of people. Yes, we are in the early 21st century, a, a sophisticated, highly technological world, and the society that we find ourselves in and the way we have been conditioned to think about jobs, about industry, about our relationship to the earth, about personal relationships, uh, the economy, corporations, <clears throat> all of those things, those ideas, those foundations were created in the mid to late 1800s. So we are steeped in a story based upon the science of the late uh, 1800s, and now the new science is overturning many of those beliefs. So knowing that we live in a world of cooperation, uh, for example, rather than competition, that nature is actually based in, in cooperation, our economic systems were based upon competition and conflict based on the science of the 1800s, and that's why the economies of the world are in chaos right now. We're seeing the Brexit in the Middle East. We're seeing the European Union uh, face a possible breakdown. We're looking at, at the kind of debt. Here's a question, Nicola. This is fascinating. We've all seen nations in debt in the past, and it's common for another nation or a group of nations to bail them out. What happens when the the debt of the entire planet is greater than what the entire planet is producing. When, when the GDP of the entire planet is less than the debt that we've accumulated, who bails out an entire planet? And I don't know the answer to that. We're about to find out because that's where we are right now. The, the uh, uh, industrialized nations have accrued so much debt that can never be paid back. That affects everything from uh, you know the, the way that we save for retirement, the way we save for our kids' education, our health care, all of those things. So they're, they're breaking down because they are based on principles that are simply not true. We don't live in a world of competition and conflict. We, we see those things. I mean, we have to be real, though we definitely witness competition and conflict in the world. And what the scientists now are telling us is the more of that competition and conflict that we see in the world, the further we have strayed from the natural laws and the more difficult it is for us to find our balance. So for me, personally, I'm a scientist. I was trained as, as an earth scientist, a geologist. And I know some of your other guests and dear friends of mine, Dr. Bruce Lipton, for example, and, and Dr. Joe Dispenza, uh, we all look to nature for the model of, uh, of helping us to understand our relationship to ourselves and to the world and, and how to build a healthy family and a healthy community and healthy societies. Uh, so if we look to nature 
nature is showing us a very different model than what we have in place right now. And, and we're seeing, I think, the, the world is going through the, the throes of the changes to, to try to get back to more of those natural states of balance. And that's what the, the book, Resilience from the Heart, is all about. Uh, because one of the discoveries, and we mentioned this briefly in another interview, one of the discoveries that has just rocked the, the world of uh, the, the medical world, the world of biology, is the discovery of 40,000 specialized cells uh, in the human heart uh, that were simply not recognized in the capacity that they are right now. They are called sensory neurites, uh, and that's a, a technical term. They're essentially brain-like cells, but they're not in the brain. They're in the heart. So these are, these are the kind of cells you would expect to see in the cranial brain, but they're in the heart. And the reason this is important is because these cells think independently of the cells in our brain. They feel independently of the cells in our brain, and they remember independently of the cells in our brain. So every experience we've had in our lives, essentially it's recorded in two places. It's recorded in our brain and the way our brain interprets it, and we know about that. It's in, recorded in our heart and the way our heart interprets these experiences through these 40,000 cells uh, that have created a neural network that is literally called, literally, it's called the little brain in the heart is the term that's wow. being used now. So as now that we know these cells exist, as we're learning to access them, they open the door to uh, extraordinary abilities that I personally believe are actually ordinary abilities that we've either lost or forgotten. Uh, and when we can embrace these abilities in our lives, uh, it helps us to embrace change in the world in a healthy way. So if we ever needed a time uh, or if we never needed uh, some help in embracing a, a tremendous change happening in the world, now I think is the time to do that because we are undergoing such, such a radical shift in, in the world that we've known in the past. So this, mm -hmm. this is uh, the, the theme. The, the new book, in the very first chapter, you asked about the, the two books. There was a book that was released, I think it was 2015 or 2014. It was called The Turning Point, and it was a good book. It put many of the personal applications and the direct experience and the exercises that help people in their lives, they were in the back of the book. And one of the things that I've learned, Nicole, I'm, I'm a student of learning to listen. I'm still learning, uh, and I work very diligently in listening to my audience and to our global audience. And what people all over the world said, they said, we want to get to that stuff faster. We want to get to the stuff that's going to help us in our everyday lives, direct experience, techniques, tools, applications. So I moved all of that to the front, and I added the new material and the new discoveries that simply were not available when I had written the book two years previous. So uh, it's new material uh, covering these 40,000 neurites, how we access them, uh, and what it means in a, in a changing world. And that is what sets those two books uh, apart from one another. Does that make sense it's if so I say it that way? <laughs> it's so interesting. I um, Decades ago, I interviewed Joseph Shilton Pierce, you know, cracking the cosmic egg. And he was saying all along, you know, from, for years and years and years that the real brain power was in the heart. And we've heard so many people refer to that. So when was this recent study you're referring to, when was that um, published? Well, first, I've had the honor of uh, knowing, touring, and presenting with uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce, and he mm -hmm. was working very closely with the Institute of Heart Math, H-E-A-R-T, uh, yeah. capital M-A-T-H, all, all one word. This is the pioneering research organization based in Northern California that, that explores the power of the human heart in 
uh, unconventional ways, in ways that typically aren't done in, in the universities and in, in the medical schools, uh, but based in science, in, in peer-reviewed science. So uh, I had the opportunity of, of touring with Joseph Chilton Pierce during during the years when a lot of this information was being developed. The discovery was made in 1991. It wasn't published until 1994. And even though, this is fascinating for, for me, even though it, it, it was published in 94 and it is now documented, it's peer-reviewed science is documented, it is still not being taught in major medical institutions. And I just came last, last weekend, I just came from uh, a large conference, and it's very common for us to have uh, medical professionals and healing professionals and scientists and engineers in the audience, along with, you know, with uh, everyone else, the spiritual seekers. Uh, they all come together because this material touches on so many different facets of our experience. And I had medical students in the audience, and they were saying, why don't we know about this? Why aren't we, why isn't this being taught in medical school? And, and I, I said, you know, I can't answer that question. But you're here now, and, and now you know about it. So, but it changes. It changes everything. When we talk about this little brain in the heart, and people say, "Well, you know, is it really a brain?" It is a. It's a collection of cells that are concentrated into a network, a neural network, smaller but very similar to what we see in the brain. And we've learned to use the brain independently. We know that. Now we know that we can use the heart independently. And we also know now that we can harmonize, we can literally tune the heart and the brain together. So two separate organs, but there is one very potent neural network to give us access to extraordinary experiences like uh, deep intuition on demand when we choose to have it rather than uh, spontaneously, you know, when it just happens to occur. It gives us direct access to the subconscious. It's a hotline to the subconscious without hypnosis and without, uh, you know, listening to a special tape. Or I mean, you can do all those things, but sometimes they're not available. So direct access to the subconscious, and this is important for people who are, are using affirmations because an affirmation of healing or health or uh, relationship or uh, career success or self-esteem uh, or abundance or any of those kinds of things, they can only be effective when we are communicating with the subconscious. And if, if we simply say these things in our mind, but we're not accessing our subconscious, uh, they may not have the effect that, that we hope that they have. So this harmonizing of the heart and the brain uh, is a direct, it literally is a hotline into the subconscious to make those kinds of things more effective. Harmonizing the heart and the brain is a trigger for a, a extra powerful, super immune response. Um, and I can speak for my colleagues, my dear spiritual brothers and, and friends that I've toured with, such as uh, Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza. We use these tools, or we couldn't, we couldn't tour the world with the kinds of schedules we have if we didn't have really powerful immune systems and, and the ability to regulate these things. So we apply these in our own lives. It's also a trigger for the anti-aging hormones that every one of us has in our bodies. It's also a, tr a trigger for reducing stress and creating more resilience in our lives in time of change. So all of a sudden, knowing that we have access to these cells and that we can harmonize our heart and the brain and our brain together so they can work together, the act of doing this, that single act opens the door to this vast array of applications, whether it's intuition on demand or, you know, the uh, 1,300 biochemical reactions, positive biochemical reactions. Uh, and we can do this. This is what's, what makes us so very powerful. We now know that we are the only species known so far that can trigger these and uh, initiate 
these relationships on demand. Other forms of life may be able to do it naturally, but we can consciously say in this moment in time, I choose to initiate a state of deep intuition. And that covers everything from precognition, you know, knowing about something before it's going to happen, to being able to communicate with other forms of life, with uh, other mammals. A lot of research is being done with uh, using the heart to communicate with other forms of life. Um, it just goes on and on. So I'm sharing, we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg here. This opens mm-hmm. an entire new door of possibilities for these experiences that help us in everyday life uh, that we in the past believed were, were relegated only to mystics and, and yogis, you know, living isolated uh, lives on a mountaintop half a world away. We can do this stuff in our living room. And the science now is telling us how it works. And our most cherished and ancient spiritual traditions are telling us uh, how to apply these things in our lives. This is where these two come together in, in a really beautiful way. How do we access and utilize these brain cells in the heart? And have you actually engaged in any of these experiments with anyone around that? Sure. Well, the first of all, I'll say the instructions I give, uh, they're very detailed instructions that are in uh, the book Resilience from the Heart. Uh, the science has been validated. A lot of the science comes from uh, the Institute of Heart Math and the work they've done over the last 20, I'm sure it's more than 20 years now, that they have perfected in the laboratory under laboratory conditions. My experience with indigenous people is that they have initiated techniques that parallel what the science is now developing. And, and I think if something is true, I think you're going to see it show up in a lot of different ways. So the fact that science is now catching up, science is only about 300 years old. These indigenous traditions, spiritual traditions, many of them are 5,000 years old. So science is catching up with what our ancestors and what many indigenous traditions have always told us. So since 1986, I've had the opportunity to, to be... Uh, with our indigenous family in many different settings, and the monks and nuns and the abbots in the monasteries in Tibet and Nepal and India and through the Andes Mountains, Bolivia and Peru and the, the monasteries in Egypt and all through the American Desert Southwest and the Yucatan and Mexico and, and more. And as different as they are from one another, Nicole, what's so fascinating is that there are common themes that flow through every one of these traditions, even though they're spread through different times, different environments, different parts of the world. And when I'm working with the healers and the curanderos and the shaman, uh, the shamans in these traditions, one of the first things they do before they begin whatever their practice is, is they begin to access their heart. And that's precisely where the science is leading right now. So the techniques are, are techniques of focus, of breathing, physically being able to draw the attention from our mind into our heart. This is, I think, probably one of the hardest things for people in the West to do. If I ask someone uh, in a, a Western environment, in a corporate environment, and if I, I ask them, if I invite them to shift their awareness from their mind into their heart, they'll say, okay, okay, I'm in my heart now. What's next? And I'll say, well, you know, are you really in your heart? And they say, you know, well, how do you know? And this is where, uh, where these techniques from the indigenous people really come in handy. One, for example, and I'll just share one of the techniques that they share, is if we can touch, gently touch our heart center, the center of our chest, right there uh, on the sternum. Gently touch that in a way that's comfortable for us. Some people use uh, uh, their middle finger and their ring finger, and they just simply uh, touch, touch their uh, right on the bone right there, right over the heart. I'm doing it right now as if you could see me, and here we are on, <laughs> on the radio, so <laughs> we're not. But some people in some traditions in the Middle East, for example, they use an entire open palm 
and they place that palm over the center of their chest, over their hearts. And they do the same thing uh, in the Yucatan in southern Mexico. They do the same thing. Uh, the point here is that uh, the Buddhists, Buddhists will make the prayer mudra that we're all familiar with, and, and then they hold that prayer mudra with their, their thumbs right against uh, the center of their chest. And, and this is what all of these traditions are doing is they are physically touching their heart center, and here is the reason why that's important. You're now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. Our awareness... Our conscious awareness will always go to the place in our body where we feel a physical sensation. So when we physically touch our heart center in, in one of these ways, our awareness automatically goes to the place where, the, where that sensation is. And that is one of the, the techniques that the indigenous people use to move their awareness from their thinking mind into their feeling heart. So I'm, I'm just using that as an example. Uh, and then the, the breathing techniques that, that come after uh, that are now validated, we have equipment, technology that we can hook people up to uh, specialized pieces of software and uh, be able to actually see the effect uh, in their bodies that are, have, that, that are occurring from making these connections. So we can talk more about that if, if you'd like to. I uh, don't know how far you want to go with all of this. Um, well, down the rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. This is new to us all. I'll just remind people listening, if you missed it, uh, you mentioned heart math. I talked to Howard Martin, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and that's in the archives at newsforthesoul.com. And it's funny, you know, when you hear things in threes, uh, this independently, this general topic about the power, true power of the heart has come up three times independently in three different ways for me this week. So I know this is important. And Ultimately, tying it back into current world events would be awesome. But tell us what's next. What's next where? At where you wanted to go. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you, just, uh, you just mentioned Howard Martin. Howard is uh, – I met Howard – uh, because of heart math in the early 1990s, and I, I trained directly with Howard Martin, uh, who is one of the, the founders of the Institute of Heart Math. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to, to tour the world. We have been on stages everywhere, and, and now I can call him a dear friend as well. So many of the things that I am saying here, from my perspective, Howard and the Institute of Heart Math have given me permission as an independent author to share my experience and my perspective, uh, integrating their work at the same time. So where I've had more uh, experience with indigenous people and how indigenous people throughout the, the different traditions, how they have learned to apply this in our lives. Uh, Howard and the research team, the, the rock-solid science behind this stuff, uh, from their institute in, in Northern California, they come at it from a little bit different perspective when they're training you know, in a corporate environment uh, or with the U.S. military or something like that. But the bottom line for both is that we're getting people into their hearts. And that means different things to different people, Nicole. Our, we were conditioned, if we were educated in the West, and I'm assuming most of our, our listeners may not be in North America but have a Western education, we've been taught that the brain is the master organ of the body. 
And we all know the brain is important. Of course, it regulates uh, hormones. It regulates, uh, you know, the temperature in our body and a lot of the rhythms and the cycles and the functions within our bodies. But what we now know is the brain receives the instructions that tell it what to do. Many of those instructions come directly from the heart. Uh, every moment of every day, there is this conversation between our heart and our brain. It's happening right now for everyone listening. There's a conversation. I'll, I'll just speak directly to our listeners. Listeners, there's a conversation happening right now between your heart and your brain. Uh, your heart is having a big conversation with your brain through the vagus nerve. It's sending a lot of information through this, this thick nerve bundle into your brain. Your brain speaks to the heart less. It, it can. It's not as big of a conversation, and it's coming primarily through the spinal column, uh, down through the back of the brain and, and then down through the, uh, the nerves in the spinal, the spinal cord. So we're always having this conversation. The question is, do we know what we're saying? Do we know what it is that our heart is saying to our brain? And that is the core of these new discoveries and the ancient traditions. Uh, and it's by learning to focus in our heart, to breathe in specific ways, and to feel very specific kinds of feelings that we set up uh, a dialogue. And the dialogue can be measured electrically. It's a very low frequency, uh, 0.1 hertz, not even 1, 0.1 hertz is the frequency that's optimum between the heart and the brain. So when we can focus on our hearts, breathe a little slower than usual, signaling safety to our bodies by breathing a little bit slower than usual, and we can begin feeling positive, what I would call, I don't like to judge feelings, but it's what we call positive feelings, such as gratitude, uh, appreciation, care, compassion. Those are, are four big ones that the, the scientists have found work for most people in almost 100% of the time. So if you can choose one of those, gratitude, appreciation, care, or compassion, uh, this combination of events, the breathing, the focus, uh, and the feeling, and this is key, when we can feel one or some combination of those four feelings, our body interprets that uh, as uh, this electrical signal from the heart to the brain. And the optimum signal is 0.1 hertz, and when we can establish 0.1 hertz, we can feel the feelings of 0.1 hertz between our heart and our brain, we are said to be in high heart-brain coherence. And that heart-brain coherence is the key to everything that we're talking about here. So in, in the new book that you mentioned, Resilience from the Heart, uh, I, first chapter we talk about the new discovery, the cells, 40,000 specialized cells, and then throughout the book, uh, what this means and how we apply it in our lives through various exercises. So that's, uh, that's the essence of what that book is all about. So are feelings the key, the doorway? You know, it's interesting. They are not exclusively the key. They are an important component that's been discounted in our culture. For most, uh, you know, most people, we, we have feelings and emotions and experiences, and we've been conditioned to discount them to a large extent until recently. People in their 50s and 60s right now remember when we were taught that, you know, you know your feelings aren't, you know, they're not really real. I mean, it's just, it's just a feeling is what they used to tell us. You know, it was discounted. Now we know that the feeling uh, is a powerful component in these indigenous traditions. And, and interestingly, uh, Nicole, the very texts of our most cherished spiritual traditions, the Western Bible, for example, uh, and some of the Eastern traditions, when they were edited and there were pieces that were removed uh, or condensed, what was taken out was the information that tells us the power of human emotion. So, for example, in the, the, uh, the Christian Bible, the New Testament, uh, what the, the New Testament, and this isn't about religion, this is about uh, instructions. This is about uh, the masters of the past 
informing their students of the deep relationship that their students had within themselves and with the world around them. And those were based upon spiritual principles. Uh, the religions came along later and wrapped the rules and the dogma around those fundamental spiritual principles for control. But before the religions ever existed, those principles were already there, and so that, that's why I'm mentioning this. So, for example, New Testament, uh, we know at least 43 books were removed uh, in the 4th century by the Emperor Constantine. Uh, and what we see today is the, the reduced, rearranged, condensed version. Uh, it's good, but it isn't complete. And we know that because the Nag Hammadi Library, discovered uh, in the mid-1940s, revealed for the first time the original, uh, well, all the text in their original form. And among those was uh, a book called The Gospel of Thomas. So the Gospel of Thomas uh, contains very specific instructions for the kinds of things that we're talking about that were simply removed from, uh, from the biblical canon, from the, the modern Bible in the 4th century, telling us about the power of human emotion and how to use that emotion uh, you know, for healing in our lives. So that's one example of where we've known this in the past, uh, and then for a number of reasons, that knowledge was taken from uh, one of our most cherished spiritual traditions, and now it's being reintroduced from, from the language of science. So the, the power of human emotion uh, is what establishes that point one hertz uh, relationship between the heart and the brain. You can be in your heart and not have the heart-brain relationship, and, and that is another technique. Sometimes we don't need that full heart-brain relationship. Sometimes we can simply focus in our hearts uh, through touching our heart center the way that I mentioned and through breathing techniques that slow, uh, slow our breathing so that we know that we're, we're in a place that's safe. Uh, and there are sometimes for certain kinds of intuition, the technique stops there. That's all you need. And if you want to go deeper and initiate some of the healing techniques and things like that, uh, then you can establish that heart-brain coherence. Also, it has been found to be very effective. Uh, I just want to ask, have you, I'm assuming you've had Joe Dispenza on your program. Have you had Joe on recently? Yes, not recently. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but yes, he's been on as well. Okay, well, one, one of the things, and the reason I asked, Dr. Joe Dispenza is a uh, neuroscientist, talks about neuroplasticity and, and the way the brain can change. One of the, another one of the new discoveries, Nicole, I mean, this stuff it just goes on and on uh, because the science is moving so fast right now. But one of the discoveries is the existence of a brain state above the brain states that we've typically seen in our, you know, our high school and college biology books with the, the, the alpha and, the, and the, the beta states. Now we have a gamma state. And the gamma state is a very, very fast brainwave. It is a, uh, associated with super learning. So, for example, and, and total recall. So if uh, people have seen movies like, uh, if you've ever seen Jason Bourne, you know, the, Matt Damon and all, all of the, uh, the Jason Bourne movies where he does these amazing, he can walk into a room, he looks at the room once, he leaves, and he has total recall of everything in the room. Those techniques are actually being taught today, and they're using what we're talking about now, this heart-brain connection for not only to take in tremendous amounts of information, but to be able to access, to recall the information that we have. Super learning is what it's called. So in a gamma state uh, that is achieved through this heart-brain connection, we are not only super learning, uh, but it also helps people in, uh, who are dealing with depression. It moves them out of the state of depression by being in the gamma state. So there are many benefits, uh, health benefits, even if people aren't into what we would call the, you know, necessarily the, the spiritual aspect or they're not into the intuition or subconscious or any of those things. Simply 
harmonizing the heart and the brain is a really healthy thing to do. Uh, and it, it's something that can be done before we do the other things, the other practices that we have. So it, if we have a yoga practice, for example, uh, yoga goes much better when our heart and brain is harmonized and in coherence. If we have a martial arts practice, uh, we're much more effective when our heart and brain is, is in coherence. So what I like to say is everything goes better with, with coherence. You're now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. So it's not in place of, we become coherent uh, and then go about doing the practices that, that are important to us. Uh, and these techniques, Howard may have mentioned this, they're actually being used in the U.S. military, all four branches of the U.S. military for our uh, amazing men and women who are serving our country right now in, in ways that we just don't get to hear about. They're doing much more than working on the battlefield. So much is going on, rebuilding infrastructure and education and medical and uh, all kinds of things. But before they're deployed, many of them are learning about heart-brain harmony uh, so that they are focused when they're in their deployment. And the flip side that I think is really exciting is once your nervous system is wired uh, for battlefield conditions or for survival, when you're deployed uh, you know, halfway around the world in Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere like that, it doesn't turn off the moment you get on the plane to come home. And the very sad statistics that, um, that we're seeing about U.S. men and women, service men and women coming home and high rates of uh, suicide, it's very sad to talk about, uh, mm-hmm. high rates of divorce, uh, things like that, because they, they're having problems reintegrating. How do, you, how do you make that shift from being in the battlefield to walking down the streets of you know, San Francisco or Chicago or Albuquerque, New Mexico or you know, wherever? And these techniques are actually being used to, to help them reintegrate uh, and reset. The term is to reset their nervous systems. Uh, also being wow. used by first responders, uh, EMTs, um, police, uh, fire, first responders. Right after 9-11, they started using the technique. So I'm just saying this so that our listeners can know this is more than simply a spiritual practice. It, it is the doorway to the spiritual practices that I've experienced personally through my indigenous uh, experiences or my experiences with indigenous people. Uh, but it is also physiologically, it's a really healthy thing to do. And it, it opens the door to, uh, to triggering healthy, healthy states within us. Uh, as I mentioned, over 1,300 biochemical reactions, positive biochemical reactions, just from doing this this one technique. That, again, was a long yeah. answer to a short question, but I, I just wanted people to know that the many applications for, for something like this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, intellectually, it makes sense, and, and based on the conversations we've had over the decades of, um, you know, the connections with the heart and the power of that in bypassing the straight conscious mind, it all makes sense, right? So how do we apply this or can we apply this to manifesting a more positive outlook path for the collective in the world right now? Well, this is uh, it's a really good question, Nicole, and this is another facet of the studies that are being done, uh, pioneered by the Institute of Heart Math. 
Uh, and as, a, as a, a former geologist, I'm not a practicing geologist now, but I am an earth scientist, so I find this, what I'm about to share, uh, especially fascinating. We've all heard of the magnetic field of, of the earth, and the magnetic field, a lot of people don't know, is that it influences every form of life. I mean, every blade of grass, every dog, every cat, every hamster, every goldfish, every CEO of every corporation, every leader of every nation, there is no them and us when it comes to the magnetic field of the earth. There is only a we. We are all deeply influenced by this field. And here's the reason that I'm saying this and why it's important is because the science is showing very clearly that when the magnetic field of the earth is strong, it influences us in a positive way. We become less aggressive, more cooperative, more willing to work together, better listeners, and when the magnetic fields are weak, just the opposite happens. We become uh, more aggressive, less willing to work together. Uh, and unfortunately, we discovered this through 9-11. 9-11 was the first time that scientists discovered uh, how deep our relationship to the Earth really goes. Now, maybe to our listeners, we say, you know, this is you know, no big news to us. We've always known this. That's to the listeners of this program. But scientists have been trained to think uh, of humans as separate from one another, separate from the earth, and we, they've been trained to believe that we have very little influence over our own bodies uh, and over what happens in the world. And 9-11 taught scientists that that's not true, and here is what happened. Uh, the magnetic fields that I just described, they're so important that we have satellites every 30 minutes maybe even more frequently, but every 30 minutes they send data back to the Earth to tell scientists how strong those fields are and what's happening. They, they fluctuate on a daily basis. There are rhythms. Uh, they ebb and they flow. It looks like a, a, a big sine wave. Every 24 hours the magnetic fields of the Earth ebb and they flow, and they ebb and they flow. Scientists knew that. But what happened was there was one day when the magnetic data from the Earth, there was this huge spike. It was higher than what they would traditionally see <clears throat> and they they weren't used to seeing that and they said well you know what what on earth i mean literally what on earth <laughs> is happening to make these magnetic fields so strong and they looked at the date where that spike occurred and it was uh it was 9 a.m uh eastern standard time september 11th 2001 it was 15 minutes after the first planes hit the first tower of the world trade center so the scientists believe it took about 15 minutes for the, those horrific images that we all remember, those of us that were living men, they believe it took about 15 minutes for those images to circulate the globe and for people to respond emotionally to what they were seeing. And for most people, that response, it was a heart-based response. Now, they were different. Some of them were, some of it was fear, some of it was sadness, uh, some of it was shock, uh, but everyone it was a heart-based experience. The strongest magnetic field generated in the human body is generated by the human heart. And some people are surprised by that because they, they think it's the brain. The brain has uh, a magnetic and electrical field, but it's weak compared to the human heart. The heart has the strongest electrical and the strongest magnetic field in the human body. So 9-11, what happened was hundreds of millions of people simultaneously were witnessing the horrors of New York City in 9-11, and hundreds of millions of hearts were generating increased magnetic response to, to what they were seeing that actually influenced the magnetic fields of planet Earth. And this is what was showing up on the satellite data. We spiked the, the magnetic field of our planet 
in response to what we saw, and here's why that's important. If you and your listeners can remember it, at least, at least for a few days after 9-11, we were so close as a global family. I mean, not only in America, I was in Australia when the whole thing happened. I couldn't even come home for a few days. So I, I know that it wasn't only in America, but we were close as a family. People in big cities, they looked at each other in the eyes and they spoke to one another and there were hugs that were happening. And there was this, this sense of unity. And scientists uh, attribute that to the high magnetic fields of the planet that resulted from our seeing what had happened. So the question became immediately, can we create that kind of an experience without the tragedy? Can we consciously raise that magnetic field of the planet uh, without having a tragedy that we react to? Can we do it because we choose to? Uh, and the answer is yes. And this became the foundation of a project uh, that is spearheaded by the Institute of Heart Math and, and for Transparency. Uh, I want our listeners to know I'm on the, the steering committee uh, and a spokesperson for this project uh, that is called the, the GCI, the Global Coherence Initiative. So the personal hmm. coherence we just talked about, personal coherence is good for us. Individually, global coherence is good for the planet. And what has happened, I'll just make a, a long story very brief, because I know we're coming up on, on the end of our hour here. Satellites to detect these fields are very expensive. So the scientists, the Institute of Heart Math, uh, worked on ground-based sensors uh, and created a network of these sensors uh, in different nations that all feed back to one computer in Northern California, and they measure the planet's response and our interaction with the planet, they measure these magnetic fields uh, every day. And if people want to see these, uh, you can actually see them real time. And you can see them about, I think they post them uh, usually at midnight after the, the data is, has been analyzed every day at uh, www.heartmath, H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H, all one word, .org, and then go to GCI, Global Coherence Initiative. It doesn't cost you anything. You can see the live data. You can see the science. You can read about the sensors. So we now have a way, a feedback mechanism, so we can see what's happening with the fields of the earth. That's part one. Part two is training people to create this heart-brain coherence so that throughout every day across this planet, there are people that are literally feeding the field in a positive way. So we're all feeding it every day. We're all having feelings. The question is, what are we feeding the field every day? Uh, and it's by learning this, these various techniques of heart-brain coherence that we're actually contributing not only to our own health, but contributing to the field that influences our cooperation or lack of cooperation on, on the planet. So it is, there are two, two things happening here. We've got personal and we've got global uh, healing that is occurring from... Uh, embracing this relationship that was known by our ancestors in ancient traditions and is now being validated uh, and reconfirmed and expanded through through the best science of the modern world. And it all happens within the context of a world that we're living a time of extremes. Uh, the world is changing faster than we've been prepared to accept. And for many of us, uh, we're just not used to that kind of change. So I think it, when I said I trust in the process, it's only now that the science is giving us the tools to tune our bodies and harmonize to the rate of change that we're seeing in the world while the demand for that change is emerging. And I think it's perfect symmetry, perfect timing, 
Uh, I don't understand everything that's happening. I don't claim to, but I do trust in the process and as I see it unfolding. Wow, that's exciting. Global coherence sounds very intriguing. When Next time we talk, we'll have to get more into that. I'm curious as if you know uh, if there was any kind of major thing tracked on November 8, 2016. If there were any major, uh, we, the signal broke up a little bit, and I couldn't hear what you said, Nicole. Sorry, major energy shift tracked on uh, November 8, 2016. You know, it, it was interesting. I went back. It was not what people would have expected. I went back, huh. uh, and I looked at the magnetic fields. You're talking about the elections, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I went back, and I looked. Well, first I compared. I went back to Obama's first election, the very first time he was elected. And what the data showed uh, is that there was a lot of excitement in the fields leading up to his inauguration. And on Inauguration Day, not so, so much the election, but on Inauguration Day, the field became very quiet. It was the global energetic field became very quiet. Uh, scientists are reluctant to say one thing causes another. So what they will say is that something correlates with another. And there's a high correlation between a calm that came, that flowed across the planet, uh, at least in those magnetic fields, and, and when the inauguration happened, and it lasted for a few days. Um, we didn't see that kind of change, but we also didn't see uh, a lot of... Um, you know, they thought their scientists and many casual observers thought there might be some kind of, uh, you know, anxiety showing up in the field. And, and that didn't really show up either, at least initially. Uh, it showed up a, a few days, I think it was three or four days later, there started to be a lot of activity in the field. And if you, mm. if you go in, in, on this website, the bright, the bright areas that you see on those 24-hour charts, that is where there's a high level of activity. And when you see the, the dark blues and uh, we don't see much happening there, that is, uh, those are, are the quieter areas. So there was a, I think people were surprised uh, at what happened during the election and inauguration. And I think maybe the field, this is my personal opinion, this isn't Hartmann saying this, my personal feeling is I think people, the world was surprised uh, and was kind of, I think the magnetic fields are reflecting us kind of letting it sink in what has just happened. Mm. And it took a few days to do that. And then, then about three days later, we started seeing a lot of, uh, uh, really a lot of activity. And that's, I think, when people figured out what just happened and they said, okay, you know, now what? <laughs> What's next? Uh, so, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Well, that's yeah. a very intriguing project. Well, can I I was not aware of that, and now I'm on the live data, so I'm going to be on there for several hours. That's fun. Thanks for letting so you, us you know were, I'm You were able to bring, it, bring up the site while we're talking? Yes. Uh, I went into global coherence under research and then live data. So yeah, yeah so you can see the live data. What's important here is this project, uh, and I'll tell you, everyone is fascinated by this, U.S. military, uh, mainstream scientists. We have never, never has we've never had this depth of understanding between the human body and the magnetic fields of the earth as individuals and the collective response and our collective relationship to this field. And it, it goes back, it harkens back to this idea that we are part of the world rather than separate from. We are part of a living system and we influence this system consciously or subconsciously, whether we know it or not, we're, we're influencing it. And now we have the ability to consciously come together as a global community. Uh, and through doing something that's good for us individually, collectively, it's good for our communities and it's good for nations. And I can't think of a better time to, to have that ability 
uh, and to, to breathe life into that ability. And maybe not a better way uh, to end our program because it looks like it's almost the top of the hour for you. So We are there I uh, really appreciate you, your work, your long years of dedication to bringing this information forward, and I hope you'll join me when your next book comes out by October to discuss that as well. I would love to. All I need is an invitation, so <laughs> I think I just heard one. <laughs> <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah, Nicole, right, thank, you, thank you so much for the work you're doing, and um, everyone listening, I just want to thank you all for all you're doing. Just to be the best person you can be and to create the best world possible, uh, I'm an optimist. I've never been more optimistic about our world. World, and I'm also a realist. We have a lot of work to do to to bring what we know in our hearts to fruition in our lives. And I, I just want to say one thing about work. Uh, the prophet Khalil Gibran, the, the poet and the prophet uh, and the author in the 20th century, in his book that was titled The Prophet, he wrote about work. And what he said very clearly, and I read this when I was 10 years old, and it's been with me ever since. He said, work is our love made visible. Work is love made visible. And it's going to take a lot of work to change the way we think and live, uh, that's our love made visible. And I think we're worth it, and I think our world is worth it. So that, that's what I'd like to leave our listeners with today, Nicole. Perfect. Resilience from the Heart, Greg Braden's latest book. We'll talk to him again soon. And, Greg, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time. Take care. I'm looking forward to it already. Greg Braden can be found online and linked up at newsforthesoul.com. This will be in the archives and re-aired on our California stations this week. And we'll go out from there. We are back with more right after this. You are now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. And we love News for the Soul! I'm feeling enormous energy around this show. Just enormous, enormous. Uh, I, I really have to hand it to you, Nicole. You've created sort of a niche of amazing amazing connections that just like <laughs> the angels and the devatas that are like attracted to news for the soul is amazing like uh, this is what's okay. getting it, it's it's some angel telling somebody okay listen get on this show listen to this program even not my program whatever program you've got on it's really amazing it's hard to believe it's uh, 17 years since uh, I was there in Vancouver and you were sitting there in class, and you were using remote viewing, and I think I said to you that uh, you were going to be a radio talk show host or something along those lines. It wasn't really a prediction. It was just a kind of a sense of who you were and what you were doing and the direction you were going. And wow, voila, and there you were. <laughs> and still nothing. But it's amazing. Look at what you've done with it. I just wanted to say I'm very proud of you for what you've accomplished, uh, for just the format to the assemblage of wonderful people, great minds, and people who are working to serve humanity and do the things that they do. It's really, I've been looking through your list of callers, and uh, I mean, uh, of uh, interviewees, and you just do a tremendous job. I'm so proud of you. Uh, I really am. And uh, I'm proud of all the people that support you and follow you and do what they do and just keep doing that for, for this wonderful woman. Uh, it's so important because there are not a lot of really high-quality 
message portals that are out there where messengers get to come in and say what they want to say uh, in this format. So it's because of your support of her that she's able to continue doing that. So please step that up and continue doing it. And I just want to do it more. I mean, I feel good being here and being with you. I always do when I'm talking with you. So I think we just need to keep doing this more. And we Hello, everybody. This is Damien Brinkley. Welcome to the hearts and minds of Informant. This is News for the Soul. Hello, this is Satyan Raja, and you're listening to News for the Soul. Be open in your mind, your body, your being. Allow yourself to drench in this awesome information to evolve you to your next place. Hey, this is Dave Morehouse, and you're listening to News for the Soul. Yeah, man. We all love to hear the good news. So we all should rush to hear the good news. But we are telling us to find the good news. NSTA, NSTA. News for the soul at the very best. NSTA, NSTA. News for the soul at the very best. NSTA, NSTA. News for the soul at the very best. Yeah, man. Just like that to www.newsforthesoul.com. Can you We are a life-changing talk radio. We give you good news to keep you on the go. And you can also share the good news you know. And that's the way we keep in the flow. We only focus on the positive things, yeah. We only focus on the positive things, yeah. We not go put none of the negative things there. We not go put none of the negative things there. NFTA, NFTA. News for the soul at the very best. NFTA, NFTA. News for the soul at the very best. Log on to www.newsforthesoul.com. Every time. Come here, good news. Share the good news. And we all feeling good for the good news. A life-changing talk radio We give you good news to keep you on the go And you can also share the good news you know And that's the way we keep in the flow We only focus on the positive things, yeah We only focus on the positive things, yeah We never put none of the negative in there We never put none of the negative in there NFTA, NFTA News for the soul at the very best you are listening to the news for the soul radio network and we're back and it's time to go live again i'm nicole marie whitney news for the soul radio life-changing talk radio something uplifting to the unexplained and over the many years that we've been around we have talked to one very special scientist and author with a real gift in bridging science and spirit dr bruce lipton is with me here for the next hour here today on news for the soul And I actually can't remember the last time we talked to him live, but he's the author of Biology of Belief. And it, believe it or not, is the 10th anniversary of Biology of Belief. So we're going to be talking about that. 
In case you don't know, he is a stem cell biologist, best-selling author, recipient of the 2009 GOI Peace Award, and he's been a guest speaker on hundreds of TV and radio shows, including ours over the years. And like I said, bridging science and spirit, there's great power in that one place, and that's where we begin. Dr. Bruce Lipton, welcome back to News for the Soul. Thank you so very much. I'm so happy to be back on the show and I'm so happy to be able to talk to the wonderful audience uh, because they're my cultural creatives, the ones that are helping create a new civilization, and I, I so appreciate them. You know, so much has happened in that field since you and I first ever spoke and, and when you began on your path. It's, it's amazing now to see the changes coming to pass that we just talked about seeing before. Well, it, it, for me, it's very exciting because it was an opportunity to see something, and then I had to be patient enough to wait long enough for <laughs> the, the public to get it. But it, it's like, for me, it was so exciting to see a whole different understanding of the planet and, and, and the world we live in and uh, the nature of spirituality, which uh, as a scientist, I, I never entertained that idea, really. And, and through the study of the cells, it was like, oh, my gosh, uh, we're not in here. We're broadcast. <laughs> and it's like, wow. So... Um, that was like an instant transformation from non-spiritual to spiritual in about a minute of like, oh, my God, that's how it works. <gasps> oh, God, I'm not in here. <laughs> but, so, it, 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 yes, go ahead, darling. What, what's, what's happening? Why my 10th anniversary? What, what's changed? Where do you want to start with this today? Well, uh, basically, uh, the, the, the new edition of the book for me is kind of fun because I was asked uh, when I was talking with um, Hay House, and it was like, well, it was coming up 10 years, and I thought it, this would be a good time to re- you know, revise and update, I thought. And so they said, yeah, okay, why don't we do that, take a look at it. And, and for me, what was the really most exciting part, I hadn't read the book for 10 years, I guess, anyway, and uh, I sat down and read the book, and I got to the end of it, and I said, wow. I don't have to change a word of this book. It's exactly right from the 10 years of science. And I said, but I, I said, oh, but a lot has happened in the last 10 years of new stuff that is relevant to our lives. Uh, uh, and uh, I thought, no, I, I really wanted to include some what has happened in 10 years. So there's an additional 40 or more pages of uh, current uh, things, including wonderful dis- discussion about something called telomeres, which I presume was talked about on your uh, show at some time, right? Telomeres? Does that make any sense? No. Oh, my goodness. That's oh, my the, goodness. Uh, the, the fountain of youth. It, it, there is an absolute fountain of youth. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's a, oh, well, that's part of the book. And then there's a, a, a lot more on, on the nature of how we malign the concept of cholesterol as being something bad when that's not true at all. Uh, that we blame this thing, and then we try to regulate cholesterol, which is like, oh, my God, uh, uh, the machine is a very complicated body inside. It's a machine, and when when you start throwing drugs in there, it's sort of like throwing monkey wrenches into the machine sometimes. So the statin drugs, which people are on, is like, oh, my God, it's completely wrong. So uh, the interesting uh, ideas about um, new ways of looking at uh, life, and it comes down to also the main thing about stress, because uh, we we look at you know illness and disease and we say oh well there's genetics behind it and it comes out well less than one percent of disease is genetically based and, and that should stop people and say well wait a minute then if less than one percent comes from genetics and biology then where does the disease come from and it turns out 
lifestyle and stress. And and all of a sudden uh, that becomes really important because if we blame genes, then people just say, oh, it's not, I had nothing to do with me. It's my, my heredity. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I, my life was predetermined by those genes. And, and that makes people feel like they're victims. Uh, why? Uh, well, I didn't pick the genes, and I can't change them, and apparently they're controlling my life. Uh, and then I say, yeah, but when we understand the whole new biology is coming together, it reveals, no, we're not victims. We're actually controlling our lives, but we had no understanding of how uh, the invisible operation of the control was going on, so we had no awareness that we were involved with every aspect of our life. And now the new biology says, oh, my goodness, we are the masters. We are the ones that control our behavior and our genetics and all aspects of our lives. But we just didn't have the understanding or programming to know uh, that uh, while we have that opportunity, we haven't been doing it. We've been running by programs. So uh, this awakening is what? Going from the idea of victim of your life to the understanding that we are masters, that we can control this biology on the inside and profoundly influence every life aspect on the outside when we start to understand the new biology. So maybe a quick recap on your original aha for the many that are still unfamiliar with your story and in the many countries listening right now. Yeah, I think, well, that's really important because this is the foundation of today. It has become a a revolution in in planetary awareness that changes the things we were just talking about, going from victim to master. Uh, When I was um, back, uh, let's say, in in 1970, being involved with teaching in a medical school, I was teaching medical students the belief that genes control life, Uh, the idea that most people still hold anyway. I was teaching it back then. And um, at the same time, I was cloning stem cells, and this was like 40-some years ago. And uh, what I found in, in the stem cell culture was um, I would put one cell in a Petri dish, one stem cell. That's an embryonic-like cell, multipotential. And I'd put one stem cell in a Petri dish by itself, and it would divide every 10 hours. And after a week, you'd have about 50,000 cells because it keeps doubling and doubling. And I said, but what's interesting, there are 50,000 genetically identical cells. The experiment I did was split the cells up into three different Petri dishes and change the environment a little bit in each dish. And you say, well, what's the environment? I say, well, we grow cells in culture medium, a fluid. And I go, well, why? Well, because that's the natural state inside the body. They're inside a fluid system when you cut yourself open and fluids leak out. So uh, basically cells grow in a fluid environment. And I say, well, what is the composition or, you know, how do you make up an environment for cells? And I go, you identify the, the blood components from the organism where you get the cells from. So in other words, if I grow mouse cells, uh, I make culture medium based on the blood components found in mouse blood. And when I grow human cells, I try to make culture medium, which has the same composition uh, as human blood. So it's like they're at home. So I say, okay, what did I do? I have genetically identical cells, three dishes, but I changed the the composition of the culture medium a little bit in each of the three dishes. So I have genetically identical cells, but a different environment in each dish. And the result was in one dish, the cells form muscle. In the second dish, the cells form bone. And in the third dish, the cells form fat cells. Well, there's a very profound point here. It's like, well, who or what controlled the fate of the cells? Point. They were all genetically identical, so it, it wasn't you know it wasn't built into the genes where this 
program unfolded from, they all had the same genes. It turned out it was the environment. And the relevance about that is here I am in the classroom teaching uh, students genes are making decisions. Genes turn on and off. Genes control life. And then I find out in my research, it's like, that's not true at all. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Uh, and uh, basically, that was uh, some pioneering work. Today's field of science that is really focusing on what I was seeing 40 years ago is called epigenetics. And you say, well, it sounds like genetics. I go, well, here's the difference. When I was teaching in medical school, I was teaching what was called genetic control simply controlled by genes. I say, but today the science is not called genetics, it's called epigenetics. I say, well, what's the epi? I say, oh, epi means above. So I say, oh, then when I talk about today, epigenetic control, I'm saying control above the genes. This is the whole remarkable evolution. We were thinking genes turn on and off. That's a total false statement. Genes Genes are blueprints. They, they, they have no more activity than a blueprint in, in an architect's office. They're just patterns. But the idea about it is something uh, selects the patterns and selects the programming above the genes. And that's what we're beginning to find out. It's the environment that is uh, adjusting the biology so that whatever's going on in the environment influences your biology. So you, you walk outside and it's warm out and the skin feels warm, uh, the biology adjusts itself now to cool down the body. Oh, you walk outside when it's cold out. Oh, when you feel the environment of cold, the body adjusts itself to make itself warm. So the body is adjusting itself to the environment. And I say, well, why is that relevant? And I go, well, uh, some environments are very healthy and some environments are not very healthy. And when we get sick, we have a tendency to say, oh, the genes and the biology are the problem. Now we know that over 90% of illness is uh, not due to the genes at all. Less, less than 1% of illness is due to genes. And so where's the illness coming from? And it says the environment, and here, here's the catch, Nicole, it's not just the environment but our perception of the environment. And, and I say this becomes very important because um, the environment, hot, cold outside, directly affects the temperature of the body straight on one to the other. But if there's something going on in your life and you have a vision of it, you have a perception, oh, is this good or is this bad? Is this threatening or is this loving? That's a perception at that moment. And I say, why is it relevant? Because whatever you're seeing is turned into chemistry that goes into the blood, and the blood is the culture medium that controls the genetics and the behavior. So uh, a simple, here's the, the simplest understanding, and it's so profound. It works like this, is that the chemical composition of the blood controls the fate and genetics of the cell, and then I say the brain is the thing that creates the chemistry in the blood, and then I say, yeah, but what chemicals should the brain put into the blood? And then I say, well, whatever picture is in the mind. And when we were younger, we we probably played with something called paint by numbers, where you get a, a picture with outlines and numbers in it, and you get a set of paints with numbers on each different color, and then you put the colors into the spaces, and then lo and behold, you create this masterpiece of art. And I say, you know what's interesting, and this is how simple life is. I love how simple it becomes, and it's like this. The, the mind, brain, and blood relationship is paint by numbers in reverse, meaning you first start with a picture in your mind, 
and then the brain breaks the picture down into numbers, but instead of paints, the numbers represent neurohormones and growth factors and regulators and immune system controls and all these things. So, in other words, your mind sees a picture, your brain breaks it down into a complement to that picture in, in regard to nerve secretions, and that then goes into the body and controls the behavior. So what's the point? Your biology is a reflection of what you see going on in the world. And if you change how you see the world, you change your biology and you change your genetics. Uh, a, a wonderful uh, insight, which is mentioned in the in the book, is the uh, Dean Ornish, an internist uh, from San Francisco, has done a lot of wonderful work. Uh, um, he took his uh, prostate cancer patients, split them into two groups. He read the genetic readout of both groups of patients at the start. One group got the regular medical treatment, whatever the drugs and stuff that was, and the other group got no no drugs or anything. What they got was uh, lifestyle changes. They learned how to eat a better diet. They learned how to reduce stress. Uh, they learned how to meditate. And 90 days after the start of the experiment, they then read the genes of both groups. And the drug gene people, the genes stayed exactly the same as they were. But in the group that did lifestyle change, 500 genes, many of them directly associated with the prostate cancer, changed their function in that 90-day period of what? Just changing lifestyle. So there's the beautiful part about all of this, Nicole, is that we're transitioning in a, in a world where we have been taught to believe we are victims, uh, victims of our heredity, and that when you're a victim, uh, you give up responsibility because you have no control anyway, uh, and also then you give up your savings to anybody who says they're going to help you with your problem, uh, and then I say, well, and what's happening today? And it turns around, no. If we understand how the mechanism works now, it's how our thoughts and our beliefs and our mind are, are translated by the biology into the chemistry of our blood, which is then controlling behavior and genetics. And if we know that, just as we just said, then it basically says this, what if you change your behavior? Uh, and I go, well, then you change your biology at that point. And all of a sudden it says, oh, my goodness, then we are masters of our biology. We're not victims of anything. The only thing we're victims of is the belief that we're victims. <laughs> that That's wrong. So this is an exciting time, a, a revolution on the planet, especially when you consider the health care crisis, the money, the amount of money that we're spending uh, to, to bring people to health through a model that says, oh, it's just a broken genes and broken body and give them some chemistry and they'll come back and then find out it had nothing to do with that <laughs> except for 1%, uh, but it had to do with uh, our lifestyle, our beliefs, our spirituality, uh, our attitudes about life, uh, love, uh, diet, and exercise. There you go. Uh, and those are things we can control. And if you understand we can control it, then it says, oh, well, then you don't have to be unhealthy if you don't want to be because we can change our environment and we can change our perceptions. Which is huge, of course, why you're, you're you and what you're doing. Um, the perceptions, are they as easy to change as, as you're suggesting? Yes, when you have knowledge of how to change them. <laughs> if you don't have an understanding, then it's a, one of the more difficult processes in our lives. 
because there's a mechanism, and, and, and we have to understand. Let me just give you the idea of how powerful a perception is, because it's a, in some stage shows with hypnosis, they hypnotize an individual, and they tell that person, we're going to touch you uh, with a burning cigarette on your arm. And under that state of hypnosis, uh, that individual under hypnosis perceives that's what happened, but the, the person only touched them with their finger, just you know, touched their arm with their finger. And within a minute or two, a blister begins to form. And it's like, didn't just form anywhere, formed exactly where the person got touched. And you stop for a second and say, how can you accommodate that? How can, how does you make any sense out of that? Because the logic thing, obviously the skin did not get burned at all. Uh, and you say, well, but the blister formed exactly where you touched it. And the answer was this, the perception of the mind saw a burn. And the mind control the biology to manifest the blister and all of a sudden you say oh my god look like a manifest of blister and it never really occurred and i go and uh, this is why we have to really understand why our perceptions are so important because if they're negative perceptions without our even understanding it we are translating those into a negative status of our health <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like oh my god to get the health back they say oh we'll go to the doctor or get some drugs i go no you want the health back is take away the negative image, take away that perception. Uh, very simply, you know, I'm trying, uh, I'm sorry I keep talking so much, Nicole, but I'm trying to get this out, how simple this is. Um, when I was learning how to grow cells in tissue culture, uh, one of the first things I learned was this, was that um, after I put the cells into the culture, the procedure of getting them and then putting them in the culture, I put the dishes in the incubator overnight and come back and look at them in the morning. And my major advisor at the time in teaching me how to do this said, when you come back in the morning, if the cells don't look good, that means you know they're not healthy looking and they don't look right, don't blame the cells. First, look at the conditions of the culture medium. Uh, and why that was relevant was at some point was, I didn't even know it, but years later that's what the epigenetic science ultimately came to say was that it's the environment that is manifesting that. So I take a dish of healthy cells, put it in a less than optimum environment, and the cells start to get sick and die. And then if you, you know, if there was a cell doctor, he'd say, oh, yeah, Bruce, your cells are sick. Oh, yeah, we should get a prescription and give them some drugs. And then I go, no, all you have to do is take the cells from the bad environment, move them into the good environment, and they will instantly get healthy again. The point, the cells become a complement to the... Oops. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah. I got cut off. I'm back. Um, well, it sounds so simple. So it, Well, uh, we didn't talk about changing, but uh, that's how simple it works. I mean, that's the, that's the amazing part is like, that we can imagine all kinds of complexities why my life turned out this way. And if you leave out this first understanding is that your perceptions are, are creating this unfolding, uh, then we're really lost because we're trying to figure out how the outside did that to me when we had responsibility at some point. Should I? Hello? You sort of cut out for a minute. We're having oh, little okay. intermittent glitches. Um, so just the last 10 seconds cut out. Okay, you can edit that? Well, 
No, we're live. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! I go well. You got to go with the flow, you know. So, <laughs> and, and so uh, yeah, it's just uh, very basically. It's important for us to recognize that um, if we own that we have responsibility, then it means we own that we can do something about it. And as you brought up, uh, changing the perceptions, and and as you also brought up, it, it seems to be very hard because so many people have difficulty and. And, and changing it, you know, you read all the self-help books, you go to the videos and watch the lectures, you do all these things, and no matter how much learning you get uh, about how it should be, it, it hardly changes. <laughs> and after, mm. Oh, my God, it changes hard. Well, to break it down, let's make it uh, understanding about this. The mind, which is controlling the system, is actually comprised of two independent parts that are connected together. One is called the subconscious mind, and that mind is the equivalent of a record playback device, like a CD recorder. You record something, you push play, and it plays it back. Every time you do it, it plays it back. Same thing over and over again. So the subconscious mind is like the habit mind. The latest evolution of the brain is right behind your forehead, a, a lobe of brain tissue called the prefrontal cortex. And uh, associated with that was the development of the conscious mind. I said, well, what's the difference? Well, as I said, the subconscious mind is a habit mind and learns behavior, stimulus, response, stimulus, response, and, and that's how it, you know its life is managed. But when you get to the conscious mind, something is totally different, and the idea is that it can think, number one. It's not just stimulus, response, it can think. But, and number two, it can see into the future or look into the past. It can review the past or it can look into the future. And I say, well, why is this relevant? Because the conscious mind, here's the difference. The conscious mind is a creative mind. Because I can say, well, what do you want to do on Monday? And it's, it's not Monday yet. You obviously are creating something for Monday, so it's creative. And I go, yes, and here's the interesting part about it. It's the mind that's also connected to you as a personal identity, the connection to your spirituality, the, your source, who you are, is playing through this mind. So um, it's you and it's creative. So I say, oh, cool. So I say the conscious mind uh, has your wishes and desires in it. So if I say, what, what do you want out of your life? You're, you're looking, saying, in the future I want X. You're creating an idea. So uh, wishes, desires, aspirations, conscious mind, habits, subconscious mind. Uh, okay, and then I say, okay, here's the difference. The subconscious mind learns in a different way than the conscious mind. The conscious mind, because it's creative, can learn from, as we mentioned, reading a book, going to a lecture, watching a video, just going, aha, and the conscious mind can learn something. I go, well, this is not the same as the subconscious. I go, no, subconscious is a habit mind. And that means this. When you put in a habit, you don't want it to change, especially if it's an important habit like walking, for example. If you learned how to walk, you, you don't want that to change. So the habit mind is resistant to change, firstly, okay? Uh, and, and it doesn't learn in the same way. It's not creative. It has to learn in a different way. So here's the issue. We now recognize that the uh, subconscious mind in the first seven years of life is is downloading uh, life experiences straight into the subconscious. Uh, in other words, the conscious mind of a child is not really fully engaged until around age seven when the brain develops another higher level of function. Below age seven, the brain activity of the child is mainly in, in a wavelength called theta, which is uh, below consciousness. Uh, it's imagination, in fact, and that's why kids, especially you know, two to seven, can mix the real world and the imaginary world 
because their brain operating at theta is that zone, but that zone is also hypnosis. And you say, why why should the, the brain be in hypnosis? And the answer is simply this. There's so much you can program with genes. And, and culture, you can't program with genes. It changes all the time. So <laughs> there's no genes for how to behave. Uh, and yet, you when you're born into a family, the first thing you've got to learn is how to be a, a functional member of the family and then a functional member of the community. And I say, well, how many rules is that? And all of a sudden you say, well, it's thousands of rules. And I go, okay, teach a, a two-year-old. Here, sit down. I've I, I got to teach you a few thousand rules here about how to be a functional member of the family. It's like, well, that's not going to work. But it works for this reason. Nature designed the brain to be in a record mode for the seven years. Recording what? The behavior of the mother, the father, the family, the community. Why? It's observing behavior and learning how the interactions occur, how a, a parent talks to a child is different than how they talk to each other, which is different than how they talk to the neighbor, which is even different than how they talk to a policeman. It's like, wow, the child learns all these. but doesn't learn them by reading or anything. It learns them by just recording, seven years of recording. And that's why the, the first seven years is download. Then consciousness begins, and then consciousness can use the data to make a life from it. But first you have to put the data in. So I say, well, the relevance then is the data that went into the subconscious mind in the first seven years, A, is other people's behavior because you were recording other people. So uh, that's A. Uh, B, you weren't conscious of the recording because your conscious brain wasn't working anyway at that, that point. So you didn't see this, this download occurring, okay? So it wasn't filtered. It was just whatever you saw was a download. And most importantly, it was a period where the brain was in theta, which is called hypnosis, okay? After seven, the conscious brain kicks in. The subconscious is no longer working on hypnosis at this point, okay? Now it's working on life experiences of life, what you're doing, okay? It changes the, the direction of it. But the relevance is this. If the subconscious learned in the first seven years through a process called hypnosis, but after seven years, it learns in a different way. And what it learns by is repetition, habit. That's what's called the habit mind. So if you want to change a program after you're age seven, you have to make a habit, like an exercise, and you've got to repeat that habit, just like learning how to drive a car or learning how to walk. You had to learn. You had to do it every day, repeat it, repeat it until you got it down. Or the ABCs, how many times did you start A and never could finish until you learned the next couple of letters, and then you kept progress, progress until you could get to Z, and now guess what? Once you learned it, you don't have to do it again. So the, the nature of, of repetition is after seven, okay? So I say, well, you want to change the subconscious mind. How do most people try to do it? First big mistake is they attempt to talk to themselves. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're talking to yourself. Well, Bruce, don't eat that donut. You know, it's really bad. It's really, you know, don't do that. So I'm talking to myself, don't eat my donut there. And then 10 minutes later, I'm standing there with a donut in my hand uh, going, oh, <laughs> you know, you didn't listen to me. <laughs> What's going on here? You know, what the heck are you doing with a donut? Uh, and then I go, here's the point. The subconscious mind is a recording device that is, is recording these habits. It's a machine. There's nobody in there. One point. If you're talking to yourself, then presumably somebody's listening to you. You say, well, who's listening? You say, well, the subconscious is listening. I go, no, no, no. You see, subconscious is a machine. There's nobody in there. 
So if you want to change a recording on a disc, you can put the disc into the machine, and you can talk to the machine all you want. It's never going to change anything. And that's the most frustrating thing because we can see what we want to change. We know what we want to change. We tell ourselves, and yet it doesn't work. And I say, why? Subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. It learns, A, through hypnosis, or B, through repetition. And I'm going to add a third one right now because it's really important. Uh, there's a, a whole new field, and this is the exciting one, called uh, energy psychology. And energy psychology is a mo- are modalities of changing subconscious programs that rely on super learning processes. And you say, super learning? I go, yeah. Maybe you've seen somebody read a book by moving their finger down the page. As fast as they move the finger down, they read every word on the page, and they flip through a book, and they can read a book in minutes. That's an expression of super learning. I say, what's the point? I say, with some of these modalities, you can change a belief you had your whole life in about 10 or 15 minutes. And it's like, wow, (laughs) this is pretty exciting. I go, yeah, we've had problems changing beliefs from before. For what reason? Because we thought that the conscious mind, subconscious mind were one and the same. So if the conscious mind became aware of something, of course the subconscious mind should have followed along. Okay, first mistake. No, they're two separate minds. Second, we believe that, well, one mind can talk to the other mind. I go, okay, false. Because you, the talker in the conscious mind, is trying to talk to the subconscious when it's just a machine. Nobody's in there. So that's why the failure of that, okay? Uh, And then what we have to recognize is in the subconscious mind learns in different ways. As I said, hypnosis, repetition, and now uh, energy psychology. So I say, you want to activate change well there are three fundamental ways you can do it number one uh in the old days uh, it was called subliminal tapes maybe they're called subliminal cds now uh uh basically uh you put earphones on as you're going to bed and you have a tape that gives a relaxation exercise followed by uh, a belief statement you want to download about your life and uh, what's interesting is you go to sleep and as you're going from awake to sleep you pass through theta the function of the brain of hypnosis your conscious mind doesn't hear what the tape is playing the subconscious is hearing what the tape is playing so as you have the earphones on at night uh, and as you're starting to go off to sleep and the conscious mind checks out the subconscious mind is now hearing a new program repeatedly put in so it's making uh you know uh, a new program bypassing consciousness so that's one way. Uh, number two, as I said, repetition. Well, if you want to do something different, then you have to just repeat the process. And at first it's a struggle. Why? Because you're trying to create something against an old habit. But the idea of repetition of a new habit creates the new habit. Uh, you know, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember before there were seatbelts in the car, and nobody ever drove with seatbelts. Then all of a sudden there was a law, you have to put a seatbelt on. It's like every time I put the belt on, oh, my God, I hate this stupid belt, you know, and I would fuss over it all the time. And at some point of doing that for how long, I don't know how long it was, then all of a sudden it was like, it was so automatic that I get in the car, I don't even have a discussion about it in my head. I automatically put the seatbelt on before I can drive the car because it's a now a habit. Okay, so habits start out begrudgingly, but when you repeat them, you're making a new a new recording, and that recording will override the old recording. So that's a second way of changing it. And then I say the energy psychology modalities, and they're very interesting because uh, at least uh, you know a couple of the ones that I know have uh, profound effects on the brain that you can 
you can put a person, uh, uh, wire their head with the EEG to read their brain activity, and, and they go through one of what they're called balances uh, or whatever you know process to make a belief change. Uh, you can put the wires on the person's head, and I, a friend of mine does this, a neuroscientist, and he has uh, people in the audience, and somebody wants to have a change of belief, he brings them up to the front, he puts on the wires, and he has projected a, a, above the pay, person on the screen the live EEG of the brain. And what's very interesting about it is uh, the person goes through a belief change process, and the audience can see the change occur in the EEG while it's happening. It's like, oh, my God, look, it happens. Even before the individual on the stage acknowledges it, the audience can see when the change occurred. So uh, it basically it sounds like new age woo-woo, but we now can record these changes that occur, uh, and uh, they're very profound. And, and, and for me, I've always lived by this uh, old saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention and interestingly we're in a stage of our evolution where necessity says we must change our beliefs fast and that new invention is energy psychology so uh, I'm, I'm unclear exactly what is, is it like affirmations and things or is it something new no, it's a little deeper than that it usually involves some processing to, to engage uh, uh, the super learning process I, I know one very well because uh, uh, for years, uh, I mean, uh, I, I engaged uh, the, the process of, in my own life, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have been able to write that book 10 years ago because I had so much trouble with the belief system that, that uh, you know, I was a conventional research scientist, and, you know, you're, you're standing in the communities based on how others view you in the community, and uh, my subconscious mind had a knowledge. I said, you know, if you write this book, you're going to alienate all those people that are that validate you as a researcher. Uh, and so my subconscious mind kept sabotaging writing the book because mm. I saw that this would this would be problem. And and so I did a belief check, and sure enough, that's what the I found that the belief was protecting me from losing my my scientific status. Uh, and I had to put in a new belief, and that's the first time, one of the first times I used this process called Psyche, and um, I rewrote a new belief about writing the book and getting it done, no problem, and all that. And uh, within the shortest time, uh, within two or three months after that, uh, the book was done. So it was removing a block that was unconsciously trying to protect me. Uh, by saying, if you do this, this is bad, <laughs> and, uh, and I had to get that block out, and so I tried it, and it was like a 10-minute process or something like that. It was totally amazing, but the idea about it was that how does this one work? Well, I know because there's a, there's a, um, you get into a posture, and it's called uh, the whole brain posture, and uh, you cross your arms and your legs, and it, it's, uh, why it's important is because from before age seven, when all that learning that the child is downloading, how quickly they can download all kinds of stuff, like a, a three-year-old in a family that has three different languages running in the family, a three-year-old will pick out and learn all three languages as independent languages. And I say, yeah, but after a child is, let's say, eight or nine, you try and teach one new language, and all of a sudden you're up against the wall. And you say, well, how does a three-year-old do it? And the eight- or nine-year-old couldn't do it. And I say, before age seven, our brain's left and right hemispheres work in harmony with each other. After age seven, 
there's a wave cycle that during sometimes during the day you're more in the left brain and then sometimes during the day you're more in the right brain and then then it goes back to the left brain it's like a wave going sometimes left sometimes right left right left right and i say well uh, this is profoundly important because each hemisphere of the brain is associated with different characteristics. So let's, let's say uh, my left brain is logical and my right brain is emotional. And I say, well, what's, uh, what's significant? I say, well, sometimes during the day I'm operating from my left brain. I'm more logical about everything I do. And sometimes during the day emotional things affect me much more than logical things. And I say, well, where, what's the issue? I said, super learning or that learning when the child before was before seven was associated with both hemispheres working at the same time. As adults, we have trouble. And the reason is this, because the system is designed to go through the wave of uh, uh, left, right, left, and right. And if you want to put in a new learning program, it turns out if you can synchronize the brain so that both hemispheres are firing at the same time, that logic and emotion are now integrated into the program, uh, you can rapidly download a new program. So uh, many of the exercises involved or, or the modalities involve similar kinds of exercises or something to do to engage this process. And this is very exciting because, as I said, uh, it's a necessity for us in this stage of our evolution. We're facing some very serious civilization problems right now, and, and we have to empower ourselves. And as we talked about, there's two levels of empowerment right now. Number one, epigenetics is... Yeah, you're in control of this, and, and if you understand it, you can manifest it. And B, that collectively our behavior as a culture is undermining civilization, that we're going extinct. And it's not a thousand years from now, you know. They're, they're, they're talking about, uh, like, civilization collapsing within 20 years. Uh, this is reality. Uh, and, and the reason why is our behavior, human behavior, is undermining the web of life and humanity itself. And so we're in need of what? A rapid makeover, a rapid redo, a rapid change this program and get out of the belief that life is a struggle for survival and get out of this belief that you're a victim of your, your biology and re-empower yourselves. And then when we do that, it'll change the world. And uh, I just love it because one of my books is called The Honeymoon Effect. And it basically says, look, our lives may really just be a struggle all the way up and to a point we meet this one person, we meet this one person, and we fall in love. And then, like, the next day, it's like heaven on earth. You know, it's a, this period called the honeymoon effect where God is so beautiful, life is so great. I go, you know, it was a struggle until the night before, and the next day, all of a sudden, it starts to become heaven on earth. I say, what's that all about? And here's what the answer is. Uh, as I said, 95% of our life is, is coming from the subconscious programs. Uh, and, and, and the reason for that is because our conscious mind is thinking 95% of the day. And because it's thinking, it's not paying attention. When it's not paying attention, you don't stop whatever you're doing, driving the car, walking, whatever you're doing. You continue doing it, but now it's not controlled by the conscious. It's controlled by the subconscious program. It's default. And I go, so... It turns out 95% of the day we're thinking, so 95% of the day we're playing subconscious programs. Yes, they came from other people, so they're not our beliefs and wishes and desires. And we're manifesting 95% of the day a life that we've been programmed to, to, to live, what we can do and what we can't do, etc. And then I say, 
so what happened when you fell in love? And this is the, the fun part about the movie The Matrix, which is, as I mentioned, is it's a it's catalog of science fiction, but for me it's it's a documentary. Yes, we've been programmed for seven years of our life, and they talk about taking a red pill and getting out of the program. I say, you know what? We now know that falling in love is the red pill. We get out of the subconscious programming for a reason, and the reason is simple. When you have someone you find after you're looking your whole life, you have this one person in front of your face, the one you love, you don't let your mind wander. You keep your mind present, mindful. I go, why is that relevant? Well, our life up until that moment was being run only 5% by mindful and 95% by subconscious. And then after you fall in love, that moment you fall in love, it switches around, and now your life is run... 90% or more from the conscious mind and less than 10% from the subconscious. And I feel, well, what's the relevance of that? And I go, up till the moment you fell in love, your life was the readout, uh, printout of a program that you got. The moment you fell in love was taking the red pill. Why? You stopped playing the program because you didn't default to the subconscious because you were mindful. And I said, well, what was the consequence of being mindful without playing the program? I said, the honeymoon, <laughs> heaven on earth. <laughs> I go, well, wait a minute. So the heaven on earth is a reality except when you play the program. I go, yeah. And so when people change the program, we can take this, what looks like hell on earth, and everybody could live honeymoon on earth. <laughs> it's the same, same earth. It's just an attitude change. So this is why we're so uh, moving toward an evolutionary upheaval, and it's an, an evolution upheaval, not in biology, not in genetics, but in consciousness. It just says we have to learn we, are, we can get out of the program. We can create new programs, and using uh, the you know, subliminal tapes, uh, using the um, uh, repetition habit thing, or using energy psychology, these are all ways that you can rewrite any of the programs in your life that you got in the first seven years that are, are you know, causing you problems. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to keep talking here for another second, Nicole, because I came up with something interesting about it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you say, well, wait, where, I got these programs. And I say, well, what are the programs? And you go, well, wait, I, actually, uh, the program started when you were in the last trimester of pregnancy and continues through the first seven years. So I say, well, you got a lot of programming before you were born. You got programming in your first year, tremendous quantity, second year. And I just say, uh, hey, Nicole, tell me what thing you learned when you were one year old. What's the program that you learned? You go, I have no idea what the program was I, at one year old. I have, why? Well, the, the conscious mind wasn't even really working until around seven at some point. I mean, it has memories, but it's, it's not conscious memories much. We'll talk about that, but why is it relevant? Because I say, well, what are the programs that you got in your subconscious mind that could be sabotaging your life? You say, well, I don't really know because I wasn't conscious when I got the programs. And then I go, okay, now to make life easy again, our lives are, by definition, 95% coming from the subconscious. So by definition, your life is essentially a printout of your subconscious programs. I say, well, what does that mean? I say, well, look, Anything you like that comes easily into your life comes there because you have a program that allows them to be there. In contrast, and this is the one, anything you work hard at, anything you struggle over, anything you put effort into, anything you sweat over, why are you working so hard? The answer? Inevitably, you have a program that doesn't support that conclusion. And I say, well, then why is this? 
you know, what's the importance of that understanding? I said, good. You don't need a lot of analysis. All you have to do is look at your life and say, what part isn't working? <laughs> and, and then just look for the program on that part and change that part. You don't have to go back and say, who, who did what to make the program? Who, when and how did it happen? That just makes it replay again. That just irritates that. That's why you've got to have so much Kleenex when you go to the, the shrink there, you know? It's like, uh, <laughs> now is this. Uh, there's an old saying, don't kill the messenger over the message. The point is simply this. The program in your mind is the message. How you got the message, that's totally irrelevant. You're living with the message. So basically deal with the message and the idea is then don't go backwards in your life. Look at where you are now and make a, a, a list and understanding of what are the things that don't come easily to you, that you want. And I say, well, and then I would check a belief about having those things because there almost inevitably will be a belief that will not support it and you are sabotaging yourself. 95% of the day when those subconscious beliefs are actually playing. Okay, I think I ran that spiel out, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> but I just like to let you go so we can cram as much in there. But you, you had something, you said something that obviously needs to be highlighted and underscored. So we have to get this, get out of this survival victim programming now to avoid a collapse of humanity in about 20 years. Is that what I heard you say? Absolutely. Uh, we we now know that, uh, 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 and I know the es the estimates are, have been um, um, uh, longer than reality. That the scientists are finding that the things they were predicting are happening faster than their original predictions. And one of them, for example, is how about this? No no saltwater fish in the ocean in 2048. I go, that's not that long from now. <laughs> you know, it's like, listen, tell your grandchildren there used to be fish in the ocean at one point. Uh, no, because we're we're overfishing and destroying the the breeding grounds and polluting the water and all that. It's like a, it's a, it's on its way out. That half the wildlife that was on this planet in 1970 doesn't exist anymore. We lost half the animals on this planet since 1970. Half. Half. It's actually 52 percent. And, and yeah, all of this. Why? It turns out human behavior. We're undermining ecosystems. We're pillaging the planet. We're taking all the resources and and polluting and destroying. And and we think like, oh, we have no effect on it. It's like, no, we are causing. And this is a fact of science. So you're, I'm going to say this is a fact of science. And that is this: we are into what is called the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet. Five times in the history of this planet, life was thriving, and then some catastrophic thing happened, and 50 to 80 or percent of all the wildlife on the planet disappeared, just, you know, gone. And uh, uh, the, they attribute things like maybe asteroids hitting the, or comets hitting the Earth and upsetting the environment, or massive geological activity, volcanoes, earthquakes, and stuff like that. And they say when we're looking at the uh, loss of species today, it is greater than, and faster than the loss of species in the previous mass extinction. <laughs> and we're at a level now where it's, it's now mass extinction approaching because uh, the organisms are getting lost. As I said, 52% of the animals are gone. Uh, and, and so all of a sudden it really says is that uh, we are in a process called the sixth mass extinction of life. But, and yet science, as I said, has, has, knows what the cause is, it's human behavior. And then all of a sudden it says, well, if you want to stop the sixth mass extinction, then we must stop 
human behavior the way it's working because it's destructive of not just the humans but of the planet in which we live. And we're destroying ourselves and the planet. So uh, we're, we see all these crises, and, and to me this is very important. You look at the crises. There's economic crisis. You know, we have a health care crisis. We have government crises here, climate change crises here. And you start to make a list of them, and you go, wow. And I go, you, you see what the illusion is that these are all separate things. And the fact is, no, they're all connected to one, one thing, uh, and that is us, and that's connected to the sixth mass extinction. So what are we seeing? We're seeing things like, let's say, a monetary crisis or a fuel crisis or you know, food crisis, which is happening now. Uh, uh, and I say, well, what happens when you get these crises? And the answer is this. You cannot continue the way you have been doing things because it won't work that way anymore. You hit a wall. You must change. Ah, the word change. That means we change the way we live in order to survive. That, by definition, means we're changing civilizations because the, the way we have been living and the cultural beliefs of this civilization are responsible for this collapse. And so when you look at the world and you see all those bad headlines and everybody's going, oh, my God, it's so scary. And I go, no, no, you don't get it. This is good news. <laughs> it's good news for the reason is this. The system has to break down to build a new system. We can't fix this old one because that's the one that caused the problems. The more you try and fix it, the more you keep the problems going. So while people are looking in fear, I really want to say, wait a minute. You're focusing your efforts and energy on the wrong side. You should be focusing your efforts and energy on the side of where's the change? Where do we go from here? How is this going to be? And I'm going to tell you what all the people that I started to know, being myself one of them, stepping outside of the box and living in a different way, have found that there's a much kinder, kinder and gentler planet outside of the conventional world if you get out of the programming. And the reason why this is important is because the evolution means that the system is going to collapse. And it's required because if it doesn't, extinction is right in front of you right now. So... When you look at it, if you look at it in fear, as I say, this is, um, uh, remember, the picture in your mind makes your health. Part of the illnesses of this planet is to be in fear of these changes because the picture of fear means threat, and the threat changes the chemistry of your body into protection, and that will actually uh, shut down your growth and your immune system. And In fact, that's one of the biggest causes of problems on today's world, the fear. So if you look at the, the crises as fear, you're not helping yourself or the planet, if you think about it. I look at the crisis as good. We're, there are other ways to solve this thing. There's another way to do life better than this thing and the way we've been living. And, and, uh, and it's changing. So when you look at the world and you see all the upheaval, it's, yeah, because we're in a transition state from an old type of civilization, the one we were in, scientific materialism based on matter, and moving into a more holistic civilization where energy which includes spirit is brought back into the equation because uh we've left that out of the picture so we're moving into a new civilization right now and that's why when i got on you know when we started the call today and i mentioned cultural creators because the people that are listening to your show nicole which is very important uh this show is saying look there is life outside the box there are other ways of living and the sooner you learn it, the more prosperous your life will be. 
because if you resist the learning, uh, it, it's going to hurt <laughs> because things are not happy if you resist it. So uh, my message is, okay, we can change our way, look at the world, start to recognize that what do you want from life versus what the program said you would be. And this is a time of great flux and change, an opportunity to rewrite the programs, create the new world, and move out of this collapsing one into a civilization that we can thrive into. That's that's what's in front of us. And that's really what we have been doing, uh, but you're saying we need to really bring it now. Well, yeah, there's talk, and then we got to do the action part of it. And I know that from my own self. You know, look, when that biology belief came in my head and I understood the nature of, oh, my God, my how my perceptions and beliefs and attitudes control my life, I got so excited I wanted to go out and tell everybody because I thought, well, tomorrow the world will change when everybody knows this. And I'd get a, whatever I could, people would gather together, and I'd give a lecture and say, if you understand what I'm talking about, you can have the most wonderful life on this planet. And then that audience in those early days, they'd look at me and cock their heads and go, you know, lifting your life doesn't look so good for a guy who says you know this stuff. And <laughs> that was the uh, big wake-up call, <laughs> because I almost said, well, do as I say, not as I do. And then I realized, oh, my God, here you've got this great secret of life. You want to tell everybody else about it. You're not doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I realized, yeah, here's the difference. You can create all that knowledge in your conscious mind, but if you don't apply it in your behavior and you don't apply it in your life, then it's like information up on the top for a trivia game someday, but you haven't done anything, and that's what I had to do is like, wait, uh, now that I know how it works, I now have to manifest a life using these principles. And, God, I have to tell you, I mean, look, my last book was called The Honeymoon Effect. Why? Well... Uh, when you start to see Earth as uh, as heaven where you came to create, it, it changes everything about the way we live on this planet. Well, um, holy smokes, the time has just zipped by us. That's a perfect pause moment, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> heaven on Earth, that's a lot better than destruction of total humanity. <laughs> yeah, and, it's uh, a good destination, and joy will be there, and happiness, and, and, and love, and community sharing. I, I, I see it because I've, uh, I've been around the world, and I've seen people moving in that direction, and been in communities where things like that are going on. It's like, oh my God, sometimes we think this is never going to happen. And, and what we don't realize, Nicole, is that there are so many uh, groups out there, so many shows uh, such as your own, providing this new information. And we don't see the other ones, and therefore we look and say, yeah, I guess we're the only ones here. And, and it turns out, no, we have large numbers of us all over the planet, but they're not connected yet. But in one, you know, it could be overnight, just like a Berlin Wall. Boom, they all decide to connect, and the world will change the next day, just like what happened in the Berlin Wall coming down. That's a beautiful vision, and uh, we need people like you out there waking people up and shredding these new paths and so we can see the vision and hold it together. It's very important. You know, we didn't really get to the 40 pages, and you mentioned you mentioned Fountain of Youth. I can't leave it hanging. Oh, my goodness. We have to have you back. Oh, my goodness. That would be wonderful. Fountain of Youth is a good <laughs> story because it's real. Okay. I want to hear it. So we've got it. Okay, that's good. Now that means a future invitation. I'm ready. It does. That's exactly what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh my gosh, there's a show right behind us here. We've got about uh, 60 seconds to the top here. So, Dr. Bruce Clifton, how do they get your um, updated biology of belief oh. book? 
Amazon, bookstores everywhere, my website, which is simple, brucelipton.com. Uh, most any bookstore should have it, uh, and um, uh, I really uh, hope people take a look at it because uh, it's a book of uh, knowledge of self, and knowledge is power. Therefore, biology of belief is knowledge of self-empowerment, and that's what it really is, a tool, knowledge to, to change your life. Ta-da! Well, there Ta-da. you go. <laughs> I will be emailing your office today with, with potential lead times because, of course, we've left on a big cliffhanger. We all want to hear about the Fountain of Youth and all the other good stuff. So uh, we will talk to you soon. I hope so. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thanks so much for being here. It's always a pleasure. Dr. Bruce Lipton, author of Biology of Belief and the new 10th anniversary edition with those mysterious extra pages, <laughs> is now out. So look that up. We'll post it up on our site as well, newsforthesoul.com, and we're back with more right after this. This is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. It's a great honor to have you on the show tonight. Welcome, Deepak Chopra. Thank you. Yes, this is Uri. Hi, Uri. It's Nicole Whitney calling News for the Soul. Welcome to News for the Soul, Robert Allen. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here with you tonight. Why are you here? We're talking to Carolyn Mace about Sacred Contracts, one of her many best-selling books. Welcome to the show, Greg Braden. Well, good evening, Nicole. It's uh, certainly a pleasure to hear your voice and a pleasure to be here tonight. Welcome to the show, Stuart Wild. Thank you very much. John Kehoe, welcome to News for the Soul. Hey, how are you? Next up, Dr. David Morehouse. I'm so glad that you called me because you are doing such an important task, important work, because you are spreading a very positive message. I was really moved by last week's show because we made a commitment to a worldwide event to try to change consciousness. I'm feeling enormous energy around this show. Just enormous, enormous. Uh, I really have to hand it to you, Nicole. You've created sort of a niche of amazing, amazing connections. It's just like <laughs> the angels and the devatas that are like attracted to news for the soul is amazing. And we love news for the soul! Hello everybody, this is Damien Brinkley. Welcome to the hearts and minds of Informant. This is news for the soul. I mean, that was weird. I don't think about Art Bell every day. Well, he wait. I, I passed at 10.30 in the morning, so you don't ever know. He was and in he the When he popped in here, it was mid-afternoon. Well, well, then he wasn't, he wasn't alive then. Right. So, you know, here's Art. He punched in on the chat room on the day he died. I said, well, that doesn't really, that doesn't really mean that he, that he was really alive. <laughs> you know, I he was thinking that, that of all the people out there who would find a way to... Oh, he'll do it. He'll, he'll come back. He'll do it. He'll find a way. He said, let's go get the mail. And he had bought him a Grand Dam Trans Am, 400 horsepower, okay, four speed, <laughs> when it was brand new. And we went and got the mail at 142 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that was that joy.
Art was about art. Art's ability to openly, consciously explore realities based on the credibility of the research he had done on the person that's on the air. This is how he was. There was no casualness about it. He was ready. And <laughs> and he he was worried. He was worried about this drought he had seen and that people were going through. And he went on the radio and he decided he decided that he was going to try to use the power of prayer because it had been something we had talked about and something we had talked about and, uh, you know, what were those possibilities because we would talk about it. He'd hear a show that he thought was important and there was me, there was to me and another two other people that he would talk to about it. And so he decided he was going to get all of the coast-to-coast people, probably 15 million people that would listen to the show, so 13 million people that would listen to the show. And so Art set up prayer. He set up a prayer for rain, and it started raining the next day. I remember. And it rained like for five or six days, okay? That was my favorite one because all of a sudden I was calling him uh, uh, Art God. And, and 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 but he had he, he he had nowhere to go, Nicole. I remember that consciousness experiment with the Joe, and it was interesting how he explored that afterwards um, because he seemed afraid that it wasn't. It scared to the crap out of him. I know. <laughs> it scared the crap out of him. I had to listen to it for like a week, <laughs> you know. And he, you know, he has to come off his high horse. I was in such pain in that brain surgery thing in 97. Nicole, you know, that was like, oh, my God. When I blew my brain out in subdual hematomas and I was crushing, Art got people to pray for me, and I never knew this until later. I never knew this until later. But at about 2 o'clock one morning or like 3 o'clock one morning in, when, when I couldn't take it anymore, the room cleared. This is in the hospital bed. The room cleared. There was no noise or any of that. And knowing that I thought I was going to die from it, the brain surgery, because you'd have to do open-heart surgery and brain surgery at the same time, and there was no way I could make it through it. So Art got people to pray. And I know the moments because I could organize my life. I could not, I could get away from the pain, and I could organize my life. And that went on for like three or four hours before it all came back, the pain came back. And it was at the exact same time that Art had gone on the air. Welcome to News for the Soul's 20th anniversary broadcast series. News for the Soul, the longest-running spiritual empowerment and exploration broadcast in North America started its 21st year in January 2018 and we're just getting warmed up it's time to take it to the next level exploring the edge of human consciousness and possibility on planet earth in our 21st year with founder and journalist Nicole Marie Whitney at the helm what's really real and what's really possible that is what we want to know so if you're ready to find out together Get ready for life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained platinum edition. Here is News for the Soul. Hear all of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at newsforthesoul.com. Now let's get back to the show. 
we are live. It is Saturday, April 21st, 2018, and very, very special guest with me today, my original co-host in the first two years of being on-air radio, transitioning out of positive news, newspapers, etc. the one and only Daniel Brinkley. We're going to get him started in a moment. I'm just going to remind you, first of all, Daniel, Saved by the Light at Peace and Light, Secrets of the Light. I've, it's been a while since I've talked to him, so there may be more titles after that. Danian.com is his website if you're unfamiliar with Daniel, which I know many of you are not. Recently, Friday the 13th, last week, April 13th, 2018, the unexpected and somewhat surprising passing of Art Bell. We're here to honor his legacy in paranormal radio. And remember him, Danian was a regular on his show for many years and a a good friend. So we're going to bring Danian on and catch up with him and talk about the life-changing legacy of the Art Bell radio career. Danian, welcome back. Well, it's certainly an absolute pleasure to be back with you, Nicole. Oh, I've missed you. I've thought about you often. How are you doing? Come on, and and me too. And, and thinking about in the early days, I was just reminiscing about those early days and just how far you've brought people's consciousness. So it has a lot to do with, like, art. Art was uh, art was in trouble. And when he had come to a place where they called it COPD, but, it, you know, if you smoke cigarettes for 40 years, mm-hmm. and it was like a trademark of his. And so yeah. that's what finally, finally ended it. But when I talked to him about three weeks, Nicole, before this happened, because Art and I stayed friends, I was the first person to prove to Art Bell that people could read other people's minds. <laughs> and, wow. I mean, that was one of his shows, you know, and it was like, all of a sudden, a reality shifted in his consciousness that the stuff he was listening to on the radio, there were possibilities that some of that stuff could be true. And so I, when he, I was talking to him, he was he was in more pain. You could hear it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, as it got closer, you know, he just... It just got to be too much for him. Yeah. Every breath, every breath was a pain. So uh-huh. wherever Art is today, wherever he is in that vast cosmic range of knowledge and love and divinity that exists that permeates our existence, Art knows the answers to everything that was unexplained. Of all those people he listened to and all those things that's gone on through his life and what Coast to Coast became, then Art has the privilege of knowing the answers to every one of those questions that we all sought by listening to his radio show, and he is not in pain. I mean, I went to the few. I was just going to share with you, Daniel, that um, on Friday the 13th, the day he passed, he actually popped into my consciousness unexpectedly. And I, did, I found out later that was the day he passed. So I, I know that we were meant to do this tribute show today. Yeah, he might not have. He might have. He might have popped in on that and wasn't even here. <laughs> See, that, this is the fun part about art. Think about it, Nicole. Art knows it all, and art was brilliant. He was as great a radio personality as ever. I mean, his his skill set and his ability to listen and to take apart and dissect the conversation, because he never believed anything. And that's what made him. He, and he kept that moniker as he explored. And he would go with it. If, you know, if you're Satan, call me. <laughs> you know, I can remember that show. You know, the devil or you. Or, and he would 
would have fundamentalists on. He'd have a bunch of fundamentalists on the call, and then he would get a bunch of swamis, and he would just start and stir it up. <laughs> if you're a time traveler from the future, if you're interdimensional. <laughs> I yeah, or if you're just crazy, okay? <laughs> I mean, he would be it was so good, and he, he had these little perks about him. Most people, he was a pool shark. <laughs> I mean, he could shoot serious uh, pool. I, I mean, serious, okay? And he was a practical joker. And people never saw that personality, you know, that place where it was just Art Bell. <laughs> and as a human being, he was wonderful. And and why me? Art and I became really fast friends because I gave him a way to look at stuff people were talking about, Nicole. Just like in our early days, I would listen, but I've been dead. And I understand from a different point of view when I look at stuff, I look at it completely different. And Art would watch me do that. And he, he he would he would uh he would explore stuff with what I thought about it, you know, not that it was right or wrong, it's just what my opinion of it was as I would look at it. And he was so funny, you know, and, and as the years would pass, uh we would talk about issues and global and prophecy and you know the things that were unfolding because as and when Mona passed and Mona was a soul you know she was that place that had changed him into who and what coast to coast became behind every great man there's a great woman and she she was the perfect blend for him and uh he was watching the changes because he had a really good mind and he did his homework he called his own guest think of parallel of someone that i'm on the phone with right now that is the same you know think of nicole if when you look at the people who who felt and saw the truth and they've evolved Mm. They've evolved in 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 a course of action of of multiple possible realities that we as dynamic spiritual beings living in this dimensional reality practicing being gods. This is the place where you come to practice be a god, and you have a right to form an opinion of it, even if it wasn't true. Okay, that's a, that's the freedom of this dimension because in the other dimensional realities, based on the restrictions that apply to enter that reality, then the, the the fact of whether it was right or wrong is not an issue. What exactly happens based on the divine law and the, the cursive law, whatever happens, these are the rules by which it operates by, and you don't have that fact that you can be wrong and think you're right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> when did you first meet Art, or when was the first time you talked to him? All right, so uh, Art, Art was going from politics. He was a good uh political analysis. He was really good at that and he was transitioning into from from talk radio politics like like you know Hannity shows and he started looking at uh all the issues that people that's going on around us and that no one talked about. So I think I was on Art's show. It had to be 94. Wow. It had to be 94 and I probably did the show four or five times a year, you know, and Art and I started the uh, Veterans Day annual report. That was 19 years ago. I created the Twilight Brigade, and from the Twilight Brigade, Art was a veteran, you know, Nam era veteran. And so you have that commonality in that conversation. And uh, so we started looking at what was going on in the health care of the veterans in the United States. And we made an annual report every year, like I did the 20th one on uh, November the 11th. And so death was big. <laughs> this is uh, early 
late nineties, you know, death was big. Uh Raymond was Raymond was uh I guess the nations got scared and or something something was happening because that's when death becomes an issue, terrorism, all those things become issues in psychology and art explored that. So I not only uh had gone through it and I was like uh, Captain Dead in those times and Art and I would get into conversations, and they, I was not radical in in my belief system about the nature of the near-death experience, and I had already been through like two of them. Uh, I'd already been through two of them, and Art and I got to be so much so good of friends that by 1997, when I had to have brain surgery, and they, uh, my dad was on the phone with uh, Raymond, and they said that you know. The surgery would get me, or uh, I was going to die in so much. I was going to be in so much pain that uh, no telling what I would do. And so they have to have open surgery and brain surgery. And Ramona and Art flew to Charleston, South Carolina, and through those critical days, he did his radio show literally, from, not literally from the room, but from the radio station just down the street. Mm-hmm. That's how good of friends that we evolved into because spirituality is not a is not a, uh, a an elusive subject to me. You know the nature of the spirituality of who we are as spiritual beings operating in this framework. It's not like I'm on some fervent mission. I mean, I know what happened and how, and he would say I was the most spiritual person he ever met, but I was still an asshole. <laughs> well, that was our that was our descriptions. That was our that was our descriptions of me. But is who you're referring to as Raymond, correct? Say that again. Doctor Raymond Moody is who you're referring to as Raymond, correct? Yeah. Dr. Raymond Moody. What and happens I remember, in the next? Oh, I was just going to ask you. I remember we always used to say to callers when they would call in and wanting to connect with their loved ones that had passed. We always used to talk about uh, putting lighting a candle and then remembering and talking about your favorite moments with them. That would be really awesome to do that today. Well, if if you want them to come back and visit you, you know, I know how much fun Art is having. <laughs> and I know and I know he's staying close. He's not going to let go. He will not let go. Uh, and this is me theorizing. This is not something I know is a fact about Raymond. But knowing Raymond and knowing those dimensional levels of consciousness, which, like, you know, Nicole, I don't think there's many people who know more about, that, about those levels, those early four or five levels, than me, you know. I study it, so I know what Raymond's doing. And he has a he has a 11 year old and a uh, two year old, and he was 72. <laughs> and what you were talking about was that he punched in on the chat room on the day he died. I said, well, that doesn't really that doesn't really mean that he that he was really alive. <laughs> you know, I he was thinking that, that of all the people out there who would find a way to... Oh, he'll do it. He'll, he'll come back. He'll do it. He'll find a way. I don't have any... I have a little doubt about it. I mean, that's well, why I, mean, I say... That's why I'm, consciousness on the day of. I mean, that was weird. I don't think about Art Bell every day. It, well, wait. I passed at 1030 in the morning, so you don't ever know. It was and in he the afternoon. When he popped in here, it was in well, mid-afternoon. Then, well then he wasn't he wasn't alive then. Right. So you know, here's Art but this is me understanding Art Nicole. He knows and heard it all. You know, all that, that stuff that we all anticipate and stuff and I'm not sad because I knew the pain he was in and I know the way home. And I wasn't sad. I, I went to the funeral, uh, you know, because they wanted to keep it closed and they 
blocked the media and all that stuff. But I went to the funeral and and I surveyed and looked to see how it could be of service to Aaron, you know, and anybody else it could talk to. And uh, Whitley uh, spoke, and um, then mm-hmm. I, I I told this this story about Art. Art. Uh, I, when Art went through a crisis uh, about his son, I knew about it, you know, and I, I knew about it intuitively, and I came to see Art and uh, that kind of friendship because I, I not only could sense and knew so much more about it than anybody was saying, it was amazing to him, but it was a place where Art could settle in and understand that there is a uh, there is a very patterned nature of the spiritual dimensions or the ethereal dimensions or the quantum dimensions that exist so I, I would say that art would art would sense once he lifted out he would sense and feel that range and he would be able to slow his frequency down because he understands radios he's a short wave man he built his own uh he built his own systems so he would understand the dynamics of the science of the art form where you slow your frequency down you set a certain harmonic and then that harmonic is how you dimensionally move, why you do certain that's what breath exercises and all that, and he would know that. So he would find a way. But where Art was at where he was is he was he was being a dad because he felt like he'd blown it so much in the early years about going with his other kids because it was uh, the nature of art to be able to communicate worldwide and to explore using uh shortwave radio ham operator so he would understand frequency dynamics and he would understand those kinds of stuff to move but in the early moments and and even if you are leaving a beautiful wife and someone that's been great for him and him great for her and uh and a couple of little kids and the comfort of where he was in his life he would be focused on that more than he would be focused on trying to communicate with any of us. But I have no doubt that Art Bell will be heard from again. What are your favorite memories of, well, let's say on the air, being on the air with Art? Well, let me tell you my, one of my favorite memories of Art off the air. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I go, I come up, he calls me, and he says he wants to come up. I said, Okay. So I came up and we were talking and you know the things that had come on because if you knew Art Bell you had to watch you had to watch Somewhere in Time so he could look at Jane Seymour and he loved the plot of Somewhere in Time and if you knew Art Bell you always had to go to that Montauk place <laughs> in Michigan okay where it was filmed and that was it I mean but <laughs> he, he I came up and he had gotten him I mean we come up in the same time the muscle cars you know the stuff that old guys can talk about and he said he said let's go get the mail and he had bought him a grand dam trans am 400 horsepower okay four speed when it was brand new and we went and got the mail at 142 miles an hour <laughs> Okay, and that was that joy, you know, this is the relationship, is two guys growing up in the 50s and the 60s, you know, growing up in that time frame, and and that was a joy. The best one on the radio, because people used to laugh because art, art, art was about art. Art's ability to openly, consciously explore realities based on the credibility of the research he had done on the person that's on the air. 
this is how he was. There was no casualness about it. He was ready. And <laughs> and he he was worried. He was worried about this drought he had seen and that people were going through. And he went on the radio and he decided he decided that he was going to try to use the power of prayer because it had been something we had talked about and something we had talked about and uh, you know what were those possibilities? Because we would talk about it. He'd hear a show that he thought was important, and there was me. There was to me and another two other people that he would talk to about it. And so he decided he was going to get all of the coast to coast people. There's probably 15 million people that would listen to the show. So 13 million people that would listen to the show. And so Art set up prayer. He set up a prayer for rain, and it started raining the next day. I remember. And it rained like for five or six days, okay? That was my favorite one because all of a sudden I was calling him uh, uh, Art God. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 but he had, he, he, he had nowhere to go, Nicole, about the reality of the power of the nature of the combination of divine people, people coming together for a good reason or people coming together for a bad that energy was there, and that energy operates there, and he had a way to see it in his own life. Well, that's a guy just maturing in the divine way and watching what he's hearing being true when he applied it. He never did it again except when I was in such pain in that brain surgery thing in 97. Nicole, you know, that was like, oh, my God. When I blew my brain out in subdual hematomas and I was crushing, Art got people to pray for me, and I never knew this until later. I never knew this till later. But at about two o'clock one morning, or like three o'clock one morning, and when when I couldn't take it anymore, the room cleared. This is in the hospital bed. The room cleared. There was no noise or any of that. And knowing that I thought I was going to die from it, the brain surgery because you'd have to do open-heart surgery and brain surgery at the same time, and there was no way I could make it through it. So Art got people to pray, and I know the moments because I could organize my life. I could not, I could get away from the pain, and I could organize my life. And that went on for like three or four hours before it all came back, the pain came back. And it was at the exact same time that Art had gone on the air, you know, and when he talked to my dad and, they, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't going to make it. And so he came. And then I told that story. I told that story, and I didn't know that Art had done that. No, I didn't know. It was just another moment in phenomena. You know how I am about phenomena that reinforces that what I believe about how great and wonderful we all are is reinforced. And this is the things that watching Art, like where he would be right now, he would be paying attention to Aaron and the kids, and he would focus that energy surrounding them more than he would be intellectually searching for a way to get back here. But he'll be back. But I'll tell you some of the funniest ones. He had the devil call in, and he I think Art kind of knew who this guy was, you know, because he'd heard him on other shows because Art was a lot about letting people ask questions. You know, yeah. he would do the show, and then it would be call-ins, and it'd be truckers, people out in the world working all night at Sears and people working all night, the people of the night, and bars, you know, all across America and all across the world, and that was just art, and the night brings that kind of comfort to explore those kinds of things, and art saw it. He saw it as a 
as a way to put information out there that's truly out there from him being, you know, not a, a, a crank and to see that it's out there and to make it happen. I remember. I remember that consciousness experiment with the Joe, and it was interesting how he explored that afterwards um, because he seemed afraid that it wasn't It scared the crap out of him. I know. <laughs> it scared the crap out of him. I had to listen to it for like a week, <laughs> you know, and he, you know, he has to come off his high horse. He's wonderful. Now, remember, as a as grand a human being as you want to meet, you know, and went through some tough situations in uh, coming up of it, coming up and and going from just being a radio jock, swinging rat wax. I mean, he was uh, he, he he opened up a radio station with like a ten mile radius up in mm-hmm. Pahrump, and all he played was oldies but goodies. He programmed it, and this was where he first started out, and he had his own radio station. And he had, and he ran his radio station, and uh, he played oldies just where he started. And then he evolved into news because he has a smart, brilliant perspective. And then he evolved into paranormal, and he loved the night. You know, he's like a lot of us. A lot of us love the night. And uh, and then people are working, and he saw from the conversations of people calling in that some of these people were just as crazy as hell. And then some of them were brilliant, who mm-hmm. had understood and looked at it and thought it through, and it was logical, especially first uh, observers. Art could tell the difference between somebody who really did it happen to and who was just telling a story. Yeah. He was really good at it. And the other thing, too, Nicole, brilliant. He could he could control the movement of the thought pattern of his audience with uh-huhs <laughs> and, and two words to change the tempo and the perspective because he knew when the person would be moved 